0: COMMISSION MEETING ON DECEMBER 11th 2023, THE MEETING IS BEING CALLED TO ORDER AT 4.31 P.M. THIS MEETING IS BEING HELD IN PERSON IN CITY HALL ROOM 408 AND BROADCAST LIVE ON SFGOV TV. THE SMALL BUSINESS COMMISSION THANKS MEDIA SERVICES AND SFGOV TV FOR TELEVISING THE MEETING WHICH CAN BE VIEWED ON SFGOV TV 2 OR LIVE STREAMED AT SFGOV TV.ORG. WE WELCOME THE PUBLIC'S PARTICIPATION DURING PUBLIC COMMENT PERIODS. THERE WILL BE AN OPPORTUNITY FOR GENERAL PUBLIC COMMENT AT THE END OF THE MEETING AND THERE WILL BE AN OPPORTUNITY TO COMMENT ON EACH DISCUSSION OR ACTION ITEM ON THE AGENDA. PLEASE NOTE THAT STARTING WITH TODAY'S MEETING AND MOVING FORWARD, THE COMMISSION IS DISCONTINUING REMOTE PUBLIC COMMENT. THERE WILL BE SPECIAL ACCOMMODATION FOR INDIVIDUALS WHO CANNOT attend IN PERSON DUE TO DISABILITY. Public comment during the meeting is limited to three minutes per speaker. An alarm will sound once time has finished. Speakers are requested, but not required to state their names. SFGovTV, please show the Office of Small Business slide.
1: Today we will begin with a reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco. Before item one is called, I'd like to start by thanking Media Services and SFGov TV for helping to run the meeting. I'd also like to acknowledge our new commissioner, Ron Benitez. <laughs> Welcome, Ron. Hi. <laughs> We're really excited to have you here, and I hope you enjoy your first meeting. I will. <laughs> so, um, Secretary, please call item number one.
0: Item one, roll call. Uh, Commissioner Benitez. Present. Present. Commissioner Dickerson. Present. Commissioner Herbert. Present. President Huey. Here. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Here. And Vice President Cizunas. Present. Present. President, you have a quorum.
1: Thank you so much. The San Francisco Small Business Commission an Office of Small Business Staff, acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community
0: and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Please call item two. Item two, approval of legacy business registry applications and resolutions. This is a discussion and action item. The commission will discuss and possibly take action to approve legacy business registry applications. Presenting today, we have Richard Carrillo, legacy business program manager with the Office of Small Business. Welcome, Rick. Good
2: afternoon.
0: It's on. on?
3: Mm -hmm. Good afternoon, President Huey, Vice President Zubis. Commissioners, city staff, members of the public. Welcome, Commissioner Benitez. Um, I'm Richard Carrillo, Legacy Business Program Manager. The Legacy Business Program is a program in the Office of Small Business, which is um, Office that the uh, Small Business Commission oversees. I would like to acknowledge Michelle Reynolds, my colleague in the Office of Small Business, who provides benef- uh, beneficial assistance to the Legacy Business Program. SFGovTV, I have a proper presentation. For you today are 12 applications for your consideration for the Legacy Business Registry. Each application includes a staff report, a draft resolution, the application itself, and documents from the Planning Department. The applications were submitted to planning in three groups. Group one consisted of two applications and was submitted on September 20th and heard by the Historic Preservation Commission on October 18th. Group two, consisting of four applications, was submitted to planning on October 18th and heard by the Historic Preservation Commission on November 15th. Group three, consisting of six applications, was submitted to planning on November 8th and heard by the Historic Preservation Commission on December 6th. So as you can see, we normally don't have 12 applications in
4: one meeting. This is three.
0: SEEMS LIKE OUR PUBLIC MICS ARE NOT WORKING, SO I WAS TOLD TO PAUSE THE MEETING AND CALL MEDIA SERVICES. OKAY. HANG ON ONE MINUTE, PLEASE. APOLOGIES.
3: And, oh, great. Hey, it works. Okay, again, Richard Carrillo with the Legacy Business Program. Um, we are up to t- item 2A um, regarding businesses that are applying for the Legacy Business Registry. <clears throat> item 2A is Earwax Productions, the business founded in 1983, and currently located in North Beach, does sound design and audio production, creating engaging audio experiences across all media. Earwax Productions designs sound for film, television, the internet, and radio, as well as audio for tours, installations, toys, and electronics. Their projects range from major Hollywood features to mobile apps and animation to interactive museum installations. They have worked with local playwrights, filmmakers, artists, and inventors. Earwax Productions helped create some of the first audio tours as well as some of the first interactive media products, including internet, sound design, and some of the first digital audio posts for film. text one last time. But I will read that the core feature tradition the business must maintain to remain on the, the Legacy Business Registry is sound design and audio production. SFGov TV, if you could go to the PowerPoint. Thank you. Item 2B is Thai House Inc. The business is a family-run restaurant located in the Castro serving authentic Thai cuisine. Thai House Inc., also known as Thai House Express Restaurant, offers dishes such as crispy money bags, sweet and tangy pad thai, and rich coconut curries. Their food is inspired by traditional Thai flavors using fresh and traditional Thai ingredients. The menu at Thai House is always changing and evolving as they strive to bring innovative dishes to the table so no two visits will be the same. Their dishes will tantalize your taste buds while giving you a unique culinary experience that you won't forget. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is restaurant featuring Thai cuisine. Item 2C is Elixir. The business is a bar in the mission providing the local community with beverages, community, and hospitality in a beautiful Victorian atmosphere of mahogany and redwood. Elixir offers classic whiskey cocktails, traditional cocktails, beer and wine, trivia happy hour, industry night, ticketed cocktail classes, tasting events, private group events, a whiskey geeks membership group, and a cocktail club. The bar has been doing business as Elixir since 1990. However, the location itself is the second oldest continually operating saloon location in San Francisco. There has been nothing but a saloon on the northwest corner of 16th and Guerrero streets since 1858, and a saloon at this location may go back as much as another 10 years before that. In 1906, the great earthquake and fire burned it to the ground, but it was rebuilt and opened in 1907. During Prohibition, it survived as a soft drink parlor. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is bar. Item 2D is Friends of Scrap, Inc. The business is a nonprofit organization in the Bayview neighborhood that was formed in 1976 and later established with the California Secretary of State in 1978. Known as Scrap, their mission is to inspire creativity and environmental stewardship by promoting the creative reuse of materials that have traditionally been discarded as waste. They operate the nation's oldest creative reuse center, diverting 200 tons of soft salvage materials from landfills each year, while providing free and low-cost classroom and art supplies to teachers, students, families, and artists in marginalized communities across the Bay Area. Scrap is a Bay Area resource for makers of all ages and everyone who values access to creative experiences. Scrap also has a popular arts education program. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is art supplies and craft store. Item 2E is Heroes Club, Inc. The business is a shop in the Richmond neighborhood founded in 1989 that specializes in Asian, nostalgic, science fiction, and anime fine art collectibles, including action figures, toys, model kits, and more. Many pieces date from the 1960s to the 1990s and include out-of-print vintage model kits. Heroes Club was founded by Robin Kwok, who graduated from the prestigious Academy of Art University of San Francisco. He has been custom building, sculpting, and painting model kits for several decades. Each high-quality, limited edition, fine art collectible requires an incredible amount of time in designing, modeling, painting, and casting. All pieces are unique and handcrafted. Hero Club was Robin Williams' favorite store, and other famous clients include Nicolas Cage, Guillermo del Toro, and Michael Jackson. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is collectible store. Item 2F is Il Pelayo. The business is an Italian restaurant with Argentinian influence that was founded in North Beach in 1984. Il Palaio means the chicken coop in Italian, and they do their best to live up to this name by serving some of the best braised, marinated, and grilled chicken in the Bay Area. They specialize in grilled chicken cooked moist inside with the skin crispy. They also feature ribeye steaks, lamb and pork chops, rabbits, sausages, and a number of other culinary delights. Il Palaio also serves freshly prepared salads and soups daily. The business is a regular dining spot for locals and tourists alike, and is well known for its generous portions, reasonable prices, and family-friendly atmosphere. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is restaurant featuring Italian-inspired cuisine. Item 2G is City Art Gallery 2.0. The business is an artist owned and operated gallery that supports a community of over 100 local Bay Area artists. City Art Gallery 2.0, known as City Art Cooperative Gallery, is structured so their artists volunteer a little time and money so all of them can have a professional exhibition space. With no paid staff, their art is affordable to local working people, and they return a minimum of 71% of sales back to their artists. On the first Friday of every month from 7 to 10 p.m., they have a monthly opening reception where you can enjoy some wine, view the art, and meet their artists. Although the business is not yet 30 years old, it has contributed to the history and identity of the mission in San Francisco, and if not included in the registry, would face a significant risk of displacement. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is art gallery. Item 2H is Firefly Restaurant. The business is a restaurant established in 1993 in the Noe Valley neighborhood that serves new Californian cuisine. As an early example of the farm-to-table movement in restaurant dining, Firefly Restaurant prepares vegetarian, vegan, and gluten-free offerings that are seasonal depending on the availability of local produce. It is also a favorite among the Bay Area Jewish community for its authentic Jewish cuisine offered during Jewish holidays. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. Firefly nourishes its community by cooking seasonal homestyle goodness with sustainability of body and planet in mind. They serve food that accesses the, that part of our deepest soul where genuine expression can flow forth. They give their food and service their best selves as honest and vulnerable as they can muster. The food at Firefly is constantly evolving and entirely personal. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is restaurant. Item 2i is Lamplighter's Music Theater. The business is the oldest theater company in San Francisco, founded in 1952. Lamplighter's Music Theater is is the premier producer of the art of Gilbert and Sullivan and other compositions of comparable wit, eloquence, and musicality. They are one of the world's preeminent Gilbert and Sullivan companies, having produced the entire Gilbert and Sullivan canon, as well as other light opera and musical theater classics. In addition, Lamplighters Music Theater has an arts education program focusing on musical theater and opera. Lamplighters is passionate about their craft and they maintain a stimulating atmosphere of growth and support for their performers, production teams, and administrative staff. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is theater. Item 2J is a rally or rally. The business is an authentic Mexican restaurant and taqueria founded in 1989 in the Financial District. O'Reilly O'Reilly serves traditional Mexican cuisine, featuring award-winning salsa and famous margaritas. Their salsa won first place in the 1996 California State Fair Regional Salsa Competition. It has no additives or preservatives and is made fresh daily. Rally is a common interjection in Mexican Spanish slang, expressing approval or encouragement, like all right. So the restaurant's name Rally, Rally means all right, all right, as indicated on the restaurant's logo. Rally, Rally serves office workers, residents, and tourists alike, and also does catering. They are active in the Embarcadero community and also support other small Bay Area businesses. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is restaurant featuring Mexican cuisine. Item 2K is Pollyann ice cream. The business is an ice cream parlor founded in the Sunset neighborhood in 1955. Pollyann ice cream serves handmade premium ice cream in a warm and welcoming shop, as well as milkshakes, ice cream cakes, cookies, and chocolate. They are known for their wide variety of unique flavors, including durian, red bean, black sesame, oolong tea, kanji milk, lychee, and others. They also feature unique adaptations of interna- international desserts as ice cream flavors, such as brigadeiro, a Brazilian dessert. Anthony Bourdain visited the shop in 2001 and enjoyed several of their quote unquote, kooky ice cream flavors. Pollyann ice cream is also known for their big flavor wheel. If you can't decide which flavor you want, a spin of the wheel will decide for you. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is ice cream store. Item 2L is San Francisco Women Artists. The business is a nonprofit arts organization that supports, empowers, and expands representation of women in the arts and encourages a diversity of inspiring artists at all stages of their careers. San Francisco Women Artists was established in 1925, though its origin is from an organization known as the Sketch Club, which dates back to 1887. The organization maintains a gallery in the inner sunset that features 600 artworks annually annually, where contemporary art, handcrafted jewelry, sculpture, and ceramics are exhibited and sold. The gallery also hosts community art organizations and features a youth wall. The community served by San Francisco women artists, women artists in the Bay Area, is a diverse blend of talents and backgrounds, cultures, and ethnicities. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is promotion of women artists. All of the businesses met the three criteria required for listing on the Legacy Business Registry and all have received a positive recommendation from the Historic Preservation Commission. Legacy Business Program staff recommends adding the businesses to the registry and has drafted a resolution for each business for your consideration. A motion in support of the businesses should be framed as a motion in favor of the resolutions. Thank you. This concludes my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions. There are business representatives present who may wish to speak on behalf of the applications during public comment.
1: Great, thank you so much, Rick. That was that was a very um, thorough presentation that you did, that you started several times. <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate everyone's patience. Um, commissioners, any questions so far? I'm um, seeing no questions yet. Let's open it up for um, public comment.
0: If commenters want to line up to my left, your right, and then come up to the mic, that would be great.
3: Good afternoon, Commissioners and Director Tang, Adam Tongsfoot with Supervisor Middleman's Office, uh, speaking in strong support of Firefly, uh, Thai House Express, and Elixir. Thank you so much.
6: good afternoon commissioners my name is Merritt richmond i am the president of the board of directors of scrap um, we really appreciate the honor of being uh, nominated for this and we just wanted you to know he did such a good job explaining scrap but just wanted to hit a few highlights scrap was founded in 1976 by ruth asawa and jefferson award winner anne-marie thalen And they were passionate about providing arts education for San Francisco youth and putting artists to work in our city. For almost 50 years, SCRAP has provided affordable art materials to San Franciscans. And we have curbed the environmental impact of wasting those very valuable materials. This mission is still so relevant today as SCRAP continues to strengthen the cultural fabric of San Francisco. This year, we will welcome over 30,000 unique visits to our depot in the Bayview. We will divert over 200 tons of donations from landfills, and those donations come from over hundreds of codes in the Bay Area. We will deliver after-school arts education to over 1,000 students in San Francisco's southeast neighborhoods. At Scrap, we're so proud to help catalyze creative thinking and the collaborative power of the arts and to support the vibrancy of our city. Thank you so much.
7: Uh, commission, <laughs> President Yui and Commissioners. I'm Mary Lou quinco Vice President of the San Francisco Women Artists Organization. Um, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today in support of our application for the uh, Legacy Business Registry. Um, as Rick s- told you, the organization has deep roots that go back to 1887 when women were not allowed to uh, join the arts organizations in San Francisco. So they formed their own group called the Sketch Club, which uh, brought together women in San Francisco to curate their art, to support each other, to display their art, and to um, counter the male anti-women culture in the art community. Uh, The art organization went on for many years, and until 1906, when the earthquake destroyed its headquarters, it then merged with another organization and became a co-educational, a co-educational, a co-ed organization. Um, that lasted for a while, and then the women branched off again in 1925 to form the Society of San Francisco Women Artists, which was the basis for the organization that I'm representing today. Uh, we have some, many distinguished members from the organization. Uh, Ruth Asawa was a member, Imogen Cunningham, uh, Emmy Lou Packard, and we were the first organization to display uh, artwork by Frida Kahlo in the entire country. So we were the first people to present her work. Um, the organization subsequently has been recognized by the California State Senate, uh, Senator Hillary Clinton when she was the first lady, the, depart- the mayor's office, San Francisco Mayor's Office, the San Francisco Attorney's Office. Um, We started as a women's organization, but today we welcome all sexes, genders, uh, ethnicities, races to our organization. Um, Also, when the organization started out, the purpose of the organization was to support our members' art, to promote their art, to display their art, uh, and that is one of our legacies that continues on today. But the other thing that's really important to us, because we started out... Um, as an organization that had a lot of prejudice against us, that today one of our, our main goals is to uh, support diversity, inclusiveness, and um, what's the other one? can't think of <laughs> Diversity, inclusiveness, and equality in the arts. So thank you very much.
8: Hi there, my name is Ari Singer, and I am here today uh, in my role as Vice President of the Board of Trustees of Lamplighters Music Theatre. Our company is more than who we were when we started with just two pianos and a group of talented friends 71 years ago. We are the 140 artists and craftspeople we employed last year, and the thousands of San Franciscans who we have entertained and inspired for generations. We are the formal recognition we received in 2021 from then-supervisor Matt Haney. We are the local collaborators who raise money for Mission Housing on Giving Tuesday. We are the 59 years of original works, including this year's newly commissioned one-act operetta by Georges, which celebrated the Chevalier Saint-Georges. We are of the city and for the city. We hope you will come to see our next show, Ruddy Gore, which is a new take on a classic Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, which will combine Victorian sensibilities with folklorico dancing, uh, with English and Spanish language subtitles and Day of the Dead-style ghostly ancestors. We hope that when you do come to see our show, Lamplighters will have the recognition granted by you today as a San Francisco legacy business. Thank you.
9: Hello, everyone. I am very happy to be here uh, talking to you, um, basically to, to thank for the nomination of Poly and Ice Cream to be a legacy business in San Francisco. This is a very important moment for, for our business. And, and it is not just a business. It is a place that we have built together also with the community to, to share experiences and to create experiences there. And uh, it, it is very pleasant to to see when um, we have several generations going together as a family to to our store, and then they start re- like to, to remember when they were going to the school, to Lowell, or to any other school nearby, and um, and they start asking, oh, do you remember this person or the other one, or or when they also say, hey, this was my first job, and. And they tell their kids, and their kids they they are excited. And so the grandpa was here, so it's it's very nice. So I'm I'm very happy and I'm very thankful for uh, to the small business administration because uh, I didn't even know about the program. And when actually they uh, went to the store, and then uh, I remember that um, I was told, "Hey, you should be part of the of the legacy program." And then I was. I didn't know that that existed and, and I was very excited. and then thank you for that. Thank you very much. And um, also to Reek and all the team in the in the legacy business program, because it is not something that I had to figure out how to do. I really had a very uh, good help to to get it done, to gather the information, to put it together. So that actually shows what the city is actually doing for preserving the, the, the businesses, the legacy businesses in the city, and encouraging the other, um, like the businesses that are getting, that are getting started also to be later part of the legacy business program. So thank you very much for all that you're doing, and thank you for the nomination, and thanks also for to the community because the community is the one that has built Pollyanna Ice Cream. Thank you.
10: still working (laughs) good afternoon commissioners and thank you for this opportunity Uh, my name is Jim McKee and I'm with earwax production and delighted to be part of this process Uh, real quick earwax uh, began actually on Florida Street in the mission 40 years ago Um, since then we've we've occupied a a space at Hyde Street Studios over here in the Tenderloin uh, Battery Street uh, down in Jackson Square and Natoma Street and so, and uh, south of Market, and for the past 20 years uh, at the Sentinel Building in uh, North Beach. Uh, I want to thank Rick for doing such a great job with introducing everybody here. He did an amazing job, and I want His attention to detail is unbelievable. I mean, he was telling me things I didn't know about my own company, so <laughs> that was. <it. laughs> the uh, the real genesis of the company actually began. When I was working with uh, uh, Marcos Kunalakis, he came to a studio that I was operating for Antenna Theater down on Florida Street, and he was doing a program for um, the World Affairs Council called Spotlight on World Affairs. And after a few sessions, he said, uh, you know, you should start your own business. And we had um, a consortium of musicians, electronic recorder people from Mills College, graduate students, that decided to uh, put together association, so we formally went to city hall and said registered as a as an association. Um, to that end, I want to uh, give special thanks to uh, Chris Hardman, who was the director of of Antenna Theater. Then ran the recording studio on Florida Street. Um, Soon, three theater. Magic Theater, One Act, Eureka, ACT, a bunch of other theaters that helped us as a fledgling business to create uh, sound design and original music composition. In the 80s, it was a, a vibrant scene uh, in theaters. Um, since then, lots have happened You know, with computers and internet and video streaming. Now we're doing virtual reality. And I'm really happy to say that the opportunities, the creative opportunities just keep coming and they keep getting better and the city is sort of Open arms to welcome, welcoming that. Uh, special acknowledgments to the the original members of the group: Jean-Francois Denis, Bob Davis, Andy Newell, Barney Jones, uh, my mentor Eric Bowersfeld, aka Admiral Akbar, David Davia Nelson, Nikki Silva of the Kitchen Sisters, Francis Coppola, for all of their encouragement over these many years. I want to thank you for your time. Good afternoon.
11: Uh, Good evening, commissioners. My name is Angelina Yu, staff with Supervisor Connie Chan's office here today to speak in support of uh, Clement Street, uh, Hopeful Legacy Business uh, Heroes Club. Um, It's truly been a business that uh, has served kids, kids at heart, beginning enthusiasts and even the serious, most serious of collectors, some of whom have celebrity status in the city but truly is a neighborhood and neighborhood-serving spot. Um, it's clear for anyone who visits the store that um, it serves also as a museum of sorts, where if you walk in, you literally see pieces that are coming to life um, and really highlight the artistry and the passion and dedication and, frankly, point of pride that the founder, Mr. Robin Kwok, um, illustrates in his three decades plus uh, work dedicated to shop. And um, his models in the store are truly works of art. And so I think when we're looking at the legacy business program and ways of kind of highlighting what's unique in San Francisco, not only is it one of the few collector's uh, shops remaining in the city, but it's one of the few and the only actually that highlight um, Asian and sci-fi and really promote that Um, niche and space for for young Asian kids even to kind of have an outlet and have a space that they can call their own and identify with and We also love that it's also a space that highlights um, that folks are able to customize. If you walk in, you can tailor pieces. And frankly, if you can imagine it, I think um, he can make it. And so I think there's a lot of exciting potential, not just in preserving the pieces that have been made and um, are on display, but really, frankly, what hopeful future generations of kids in San Franciscans are able to uh, access when they go to the store in the future. So thank you for your consideration um, of Heroes Club and frankly the many other sweet and savory and artsy uh, shops on the agenda today. So thank you. Good afternoon.
12: Uh, my name is Shay. I'm the general manager at Elixir Saloon. Uh, on behalf of the owner, myself, and our Elixir team, uh, we would like to express how honored we are to be here today. Um, I've been with Elixir for over 15 years. That's nearly a third of my life. Um, One of the reasons that I've made that investment is the history the bar has. Since 1858, our location has uh, has been a saloon. So that's 165 years of providing drinks, but more importantly, a place to gather, spend time with friends, and possibly make new ones. I met my wife at Elixir. Um, I was born and raised in San Francisco and I take great pride in keeping the doors of our establishment that has deep San Francisco history open, especially in such a difficult time for small businesses. This is why your recognition means so much to all of us. On behalf of the Elixir family, thank you.
13: Hello, uh, my name is Robin Bordeaux and I'm the owner and manager of City Art Gallery. I'd like to thank the commission for hearing our application today. As many of you know, it's notoriously difficult for artists without a proven financial track record to get a gallery show at established galleries. We are one of the few galleries in San Francisco that support emerging artists. In order to return as much as possible to the artists, we return at minimum of 71%. Even though I'm the owner, I take no salary and run the gallery as a service to the greater art community. We had 112 local artists have at least one exhibition in 2023, and 11 of our artists were accepted to the De Young Open exhibition, which is on right now. We supply a sense of community, both to our artists and to the local art buyers, because we make art affordable to working people. I just want to thank you all for hearing our application, and I urge you to vote yes. Thank you.
4: Hi, okay. <clears throat> Sorry. Good, me- uh, good evening, commissioners. Uh, thank you for nominating uh, Thai House Inc. My name is Poor Paul Mary Yaghert. I am the son of Kritia and Surapon Mary Yaghert, and they started their restaurant in 1985. Um, Truly as Thai immigrants coming into San Francisco in 1982 and I was born in 85 so I was born into the business and uh, we're still here and um, still alive and it's it's been such a crazy ride for us because San Francisco is an ever-changing city and um, I mean all we can do is ride the wave right Um, and uh, it's been the toughest I think it's been the toughest time for small businesses in the last couple months, um, and uh, thank you for thank you for letting us uh, become part of this um, great community. And um, I hope that we can continue um, serving serving Thai food and uh, serving the community for as long as we can. Um, so thank you very much. Um, appreciate it.
1: Any other public commenters? Any <clears throat> anybody on the line? Oh no, we have no more line. Oh, okay, it's just us. It's just all of us. <laughs> well, um, seeing no public, no further public comment. Public comment is closed. So, um, commissioners, any comments? Any questions? Commissioner Dickerson.
14: there all right there we go i uh, first i just want to say thank you thank you to each and every one of you who have really paved the way uh, as business owners and have created these communities throughout the city that makes the city The great city that it is so i just want to say thank you so much i love when um we have generations standing up speaking before you were even born you're advocating for these businesses that have continued to you know carry the legacy of the heart of the one or ones who who founded it and i think that in itself is the true legacy that the vision can continue to thrive, especially in 2023. Like the young man just said, probably the hardest season that we've experienced as small businesses has been in this year. Um, I I am still very hopeful though. I I am um, looking at all of these businesses. One thing I can say is you made it, you survived. And I believe we have all, everything that we need inside of us to continue to thrive. And I just want if I can just say, just encourage you, just keep on keeping on. Because I know right now things, you know, there's a saying that we used to say, you know, sorrow may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And so I just want to say thank you for not stopping and creating this community. And the last thing I want to say is, um, I'm so looking forward to every time this is my favorite part of being a commissioner on these in these meetings is to be able to hear about these businesses. And I do when I when I see you on here, every opportunity I get to come and, and visit you, if I haven't visited you before, look out here I come and I always bring a crew with me. So just know we are coming. So, um, again, thank you for all that you do. You're an inspiration to many of us. And uh, just continue to be the light in the city. Thank you.
1: Well,
15: any other commissioners? Thank you. Thank. I'll just say thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your workday, family time, and you know everything you provide to the city. Um, behind the counter or wherever you stand at your small business and uh, we appreciate you coming down here and reminding us why why we're why we're here so thanks for being here and we look forward to voting on you.
1: yes thank you so much for sharing all of your stories and thank you so much Rick for all of the work Rick and Michelle um, you know it it's such a fascinating. Thing. Every time we have these meetings and I get to hear about the history of, like, your businesses, it's really a history of our city. And I think it's incredible to me the roots that we have in our city. So, I mean, every time it just inspires me to, you know, keep building here and keep living and experiencing joy here. So I really commend all of you for your daily, you know, just... Getting up every day and taking care of the people that you take care of because I know how that feels, and um, you know I also I I also do love to go visit like um, all the legacy businesses on the list and you know I think Rick you've done a great job of encouraging everyone to visit one another and creating this into like its own community and ecosystem too. It's like you know if people could look at the legacy business list when you're thinking about services. I mean the diversity of of businesses that you have on here. This just today's meeting alone could be like several weeks if not months. Yeah, it's turning into a a, a directory like a phone book directory. <laughs> So, yeah, definitely today I think we, we have all we need. We have audio to help us with our, uh, <laughs> our troubles today. <laughs> we have, you know, so many wonderful businesses within our city. So thank you so much for all that you do. I hope that you celebrate tonight and take some time and, um, and enjoy this accomplishment. So thank you. Um, I think with that, we take a vote, right? It's been a little while since we've had a meeting,
14: so I'm a little rusty, sorry. (laughs) Is
0: there a motion in favor of the resolutions?
14: I am in favor and nominate this for the resolutions.
0: I second the nomination. Motion by Commissioner Dickerson, seconded by Commissioner Herbert. I'll read the roll. Commissioner Benitez? Uh, Commissioner Dickerson? Absolutely, yes. Commissioner Herbert? Yes. President Huey. Yes. Commissioner Ortiz-Cartagena. Yes. And Vice President Sazunis. Yes. Motion passes. Congratulations.
1: Congratulations. <laughs> All right. Uh, item number. Item number three.
0: Item three, San Francisco Municipal Transportation Authority, SFMTA briefing. This was a discussion item that needs to be continued. Our presenter was unable to join today, so we'll need to continue this item to the next meeting. Uh, If there's no objection, we can move to item four.
1: Um, Please call
0: item number four. Item four, San Francisco business tax reform. This is a discussion item. The commission will hear an update on the city's ongoing efforts to review the city's current business tax structure and develop recommendations for needed reforms. Presenting today, we have Amanda Freed with the Office of Treasurer and Tax Collector.
16: Can you all, does that one work?
0: No. Nope. Oh, no. <laughs> does this one work? Wait, try that one one more time. Hello? Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this will be fun.
16: All right, we'll do some gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Um, good evening, everybody. I'm Amanda Confried from the Office of the Treasurer and Tax Collector. Really happy to be speaking with you all tonight about our business tax reform process. I'll say up front, um, business taxes are... The easiest thing to make your eyes glaze over, if you're um, feeling a little bit of insomnia, I recommend pulling some of this up (laughs) in the middle of the night. I'm going to do my best to try to explain this as carefully as possible and also point you to some places um, for those in the room and and who will watch this later to catch up after the fact. I know it's dense, um, so I will try. Um, Just a little bit of a summary of how we got here. The... um, Supervisor Mandelman requested that um, and then was joined by the mayor and other members of the board to request that our office, the office of the treasurer and tax collector and the controller work together to provide some proposed reforms that we could consider for the November 2024 ballot. Um, We issued a memo over the summer in July outlining some of the issues with our current tax structure, and I'll go through some of those. Um, And then since then, we've been meeting with um, businesses and other stakeholders on about a monthly cadence um, to hear their input and to present some ideas for reform. And in our meeting, our last meeting, um, we presented a model uh, for some reforms, a package of reforms, um, are in a process now of getting some additional feedback, and then we're going to issue our final report to the mayor and the board of supervisors by the end of December. What this part of the process is about is really what are some good you know, tax policy reforms that we can put in place with a baseline of being revenue neutral. So our two offices are apolitical. Um, we're trying to figure out what can solve some of the problems that we're having right now in our business tax base um, and for the economy generally. So we're, and you'll see this in in some of the examples as we go forward looking at 2022 revenues, and everything we propose should bring in the same amount of money that we got in last year from business taxes, just from different ways. After we make these proposals, then the conversation necessarily becomes more political. So that's when you know people will work with the board and with the mayor um, around different pieces that work or don't work for their community, and there'll be kind of a discussion of viability of whether anything goes before the voters. Um, it's kind of a long process from here. So what I'm presenting to you today is just the recommendations from the controller and the treasurer moving forward. Um, As I mentioned, there was a report in the summer um, that was talking about, you know, what are some issues, what are the problems that we're trying to solve? Um, The first was a real risk of tax loss uh, because of remote work and relocation of workers out of San Francisco. The second is an over-reliance that we're seeing right now um, on taxing commercial property uses at a time when um, that industry isn't doing very well. Um, reduced vol- We want to reduce volatility stemming from over-concentration, and you'll see this in a slide today that um, five, the top five taxpayers are paying a lot of our revenue for the city, and so the threat there is if one or more of them chooses to leave San Francisco, that would have a huge impact on our city's finances. We also really want to promote greater simplicity and predictability from taxpayers, which is what I talked to many of you about a lot, um, and also greater equity for small businesses. So these were kind of our goals as we started the process. Um, The first, as I mentioned, is to you know reduce volatility and reliance on commercial property. So the ways that we're doing that, we're proposing to do that, are to. Fold in the homelessness gross receipts tax into the general gross receipts tax base. Rather than have it as a separate tax, it would be included in the rates of the base gross receipts tax. And a portion, the same portion of the um, tax base, would be dedicated for the same uses that go for the homelessness gross receipts tax now. That same idea would happen for the commercial rents tax. That would be reduced by 25%. But the revenues for the uses, in that case, early child care, would remain the same as they are now. And then we're also proposing to reduce the overpaid executive tax by 90%. um, And we would maintain the administrative office tax, which is really for very large businesses. Next is um, really the broad simplification. Um, the first is to increase the small business exemption to 2.5 million. It's a, it's a bit over 2 million right now. And that would continue to adjust with CPI. So that's something we heard loud and clear um, for many small businesses is to make sure that that exemption continues to go up with inflation. Um, WE WOULD SIMPLIFY THE BUSINESS REGISTRATION SCHEDULE. RIGHT NOW IT'S A LITTLE BIT CONFUSING. Um, SO JUST TO HAVE ONE, one SET OF RATES um, FOR BUSINESSES AT DIFFERENT SIZES INSTEAD OF TWO. Um, We're proposing to eliminate $10 million of regulatory license fees. These are the fees that businesses pay um, on a bill from our office, from the Treasurer and Tax Collector's Office, every spring. These predominantly hit um, small businesses, and they're paid a lot by the restaurant industry. So the fees for restaurants are particularly high, but other types of businesses that that have these fees, you know, um, massage parlors and... um, uh, I'm blanking on lots of other examples. Gas stations. Um, there's many other businesses where, where if you have an inspector coming to see if you're still doing what you're doing and you're paying a fee every year, that's what's kind of included in this $10 million base. Um, we're also uh, simplifying the schedule and down to five schedules. It's currently 14, um, and adding some additional tiers for very large businesses um, above $50 million. Right now, the tiers stop at $25 million and above. And um, this is the part where it gets a little a little tricky. Um, so right what we want to do is create some uniformity in how businesses figure out which portion of their receipts get counted for their tax calculation. Um, the you know the words for these are apportionment and allocation. they mean slightly different things. For your purposes, what we're saying is, it's, a, it's very tricky right now. Businesses, depending on what category they're in, have different rules about how to calculate which portion of their receipts are ca- counted for taxes. This is only for businesses that are operating inside and outside San Francisco. So my complete permission to tune out, if your business is only in San Francisco, this really doesn't impact you. But for businesses that are operating, you know, worldwide or nationwide or in California, this has been you know, a, a source of, um, uh, of difficulty with our current tax. So every um, business now, except for those in the real property category, and I'll explain those, will go to 75% sales, 25% payroll. And the big thing this does on a macro level is it reduces that reliance on our tax base to, like, who has jobs in San Francisco. So if a business... You know, we don't want a penalty if businesses bring workers into San Francisco, and we also want to keep revenue if businesses choose to leave San Francisco but are still selling into San Francisco. Again, um, all of the rates are adjusted to achieve that revenue neutrality that I talked about in the beginning. Um, So just to back up a little bit, um, how do we do it now? Uh, The... Gross receipts tax was first approved in 2012 and then updated in 2020, Prop F. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Prop F as we get into some of our examples. Um, Gross receipts are the total revenue and other receipts of a business. I gave some examples here. Um, And businesses file the gross receipts tax annually with a deadline of February 28th of each year. To give some context of size, there are about 95,000 businesses registered in San Francisco right now. About 14,000 businesses pay the gross receipts tax. So the vast majority of businesses are small and are exempt from the, small, from the gross receipts tax entirely. Um, this is really a, a very small portion of our overall tax base. Um, Currently, the way that the tax is calculated, it's based on your gross receipts in San Francisco and your business activities. You pick from a list of categories. Those of you who've renewed your business registration have done this every year. Um, So we have some options food services or retail trade. And then your tax rates vary depending on that category. And as I mentioned, that calculation becomes even more complicated if you have receipts in San Francisco and outside of San Francisco. Um, So next, I'm going to attempt to show a video if we don't have technical issues um, that we created to help understand a little bit of this process of apportionment and allocation so that as I explain the changes, hopefully it makes a little bit more sense. Okay, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip that video. um, And I'll point you to where it is on our website. If you go um, to sftreasurer.org, there's a business tab at the top. um, And if you click on it, you'll see a gross receipts tax overview. That page explains a lot about how the tax works now, and the video is embedded there. Um, Sorry for that. Sometimes that's tricky in these meetings. so, what the main point of the video is to show that if you have two businesses with fairly similar facts, so you could have a clothing retailer and um, a financial services corporation, and they both have 20 million dollars of sales into San Francisco and the same amount of payroll in San Francisco, at the at, when they're done with their gross receipts tax filing, they're going to have very different bills. The clothing retailer pays significantly less than the financial services corporation right now under our um, our current tax law, and that's by design. Um, so we understand that you know different industries have different facts and circumstances. And when the original tax was passed, the rates were different depending on the kind of business that you are. Um, But the rates are one portion of of what's different. It's also what's calculated. So right now, many industries in San Francisco are based, it's entirely based on where your payroll is. So it's 100% based on what percentage of your payroll is in San Francisco. That's how we figure out what percentage of your gross receipts to include in your tax calculations. Whereas other industries are 50-50 sales and payroll. And so that means that if you have two industries that are kind of similar. They're different, but they, you know, you could be in one, you could be in the other. Your overall tax bill is gonna be really different depending on which of those calculation methods you use. And right now those outcomes are they're somewhat of a penalty for locating your workers in San Francisco. So that was sort of a base reason while we're trying to change. So as we move ahead, the proposal shown here on this slide is to reduce, to make this whole process a lot simpler. So hopefully in you know, five years when I come up here again, it won't take me so long to explain it. There'll be five categories. Um, all of the categories, except for one, use 75% sales, 25% payroll as the way that they're going to calculate apportionment and allocation. The one that is staying the same is real property. So these are real estate companies, hotels, accommodations. Right now, in our current schema, they're 100% based on their San Francisco sales, and they're going to remain. We're proposing that they remain 100% San Francisco sales. It's pretty easy for them to calculate that because it's physical property in San Francisco. It's not really like a complex business type where you have to kind of figure out how to do that. It's very straightforward. So our proposal that that is that that stays, but everything else changes. And these are the five categories. And I'm going to go through each category and the impacts of the changes as we go on. Um, here are the proposed rates for the categories. It's a bit hard to see this on the fly, so again, you can you can refer back to this as we go, and I'll show you how this um, impacts different industries. Um, in terms of the impacts by business size, um, as you can see, the the relief for small businesses is. Quite big. So businesses under the small business exemption threshold are going to see a reduction, an average of 37% reduction in what they pay in business taxes. For these businesses, they're not paying the gross receipts tax. This is their business registration fees and license fees. Um, so on the whole, a big a big reduction for the smallest businesses. Um, there's also a big reduction at the, the top end of the scale. And that's, again, talking to those initial goals that we had around kind of reducing the concentration risk that we have with a few very large taxpayers. Um, And then it kind of varies in between there. Um, To start, again, with our majority of our businesses, which are very small, we have two examples here. The first is an artist. Um, Their San Francisco gross receipts are $150,000. They only do business in San Francisco, um, and they're going to see an 8% reduction. That's driven entirely by the change in their business registration fee. Take a nail salon with $750,000 in San Francisco receipts, they'll see a 10% reduction in their gross rece- in their uh, business registration fees. Um, next, we have a restaurant. Um, this restaurant is over the small business exemption thresholds, but I think by most standards would be considered fairly small, $6 million in San Francisco receipts. Um, This example is different because I do pay the gross receipts tax, so I just wanted to compare that for you right up at the front before we get into some of the other examples. So this restaurant, um, one thing to note here is that restaurants are one of the categories when um, Prop F passed in 2020, there were some reductions in gross receipts tax rates for certain industries that were really hit hard by COVID, um, and food services is one of those. So the gross receipts tax rates for food services are lower right now than they were originally planned to be. And those lower rates are set to expire right now in 2026. So we've listed here in all of the examples, you'll see what they paid in 2022, if nothing changes what they would pay in 2026. And then under this proposal, what they would pay in 2026. So that variance column on the right is between the two 2026, if it if nothing changes or if this passes. But I think it's really fair to look at the 2022 baseline um, and understand that for industries in those Prop F um, reduced rates right now, it's not going to feel like a reduction. Um, Based on, based on what they're paying right now, but those rates are already set to expire. So it's a little bit complicated, but just wanted to put that um, context out. Actually, before I get into some of these other business activities, I just want to see if there's any questions about the small business rates, because now we're going to get into some much larger um, business examples, so I want to make sure that part's clear. Okay.
15: I I do have a question, but I don't know if it fits to ask you at the end of your uh, presentation. I just had a question around the breakdown of the regulatory licenses that you were looking to streamline, and also the the process on how the office um, determines... Um, which regulatory licenses need? Sure, I'll take that audits. one at the end if that's okay, okay when we get it. to it. You got
16: it. Okay, and I did miss one example. Sorry, we have a clothing store, three million dollars. Um, they're going to see a thirteen percent increase. Sorry, I just wanted to say that one. Oh,
1: sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, Commissioner Herbert had a question.
17: Thank you. Um, I just had a technical question about the restaurant mm-hmm. grocery receipts. So, I'm just want to make sure I understand. So it looks like. The gross receipts stayed the same from 2022 to 2026. And you're proposing that in 2020, I mean, from 2022 to now, and you're proposing that there's a 10% reduction by 2026 in the gross receipts tax?
16: For small businesses, for the restaurant example, mm-hmm. um, In 2022, they paid $12,105 in their gross receipts tax. If nothing changes in 2026, that same business would pay $24,185. So there's scheduled to be a large increase already between 2022 and 2026 Mm -hmm. because the reduced rates expire, the COVID rates sunset. Um, So if you compare the 24,000... THAT THEY'RE SLATED TO PAY IN 2026, WITH THE PROPOSAL THAT WE'RE PUTTING FORWARD, IT'S A REDUCTION OF 31% IN THEIR GROSS RECEIPTS TAX. OKAY. DOES THAT HELP? THANK YOU. YES. Yeah. OKAY. AND THEN THE LAST EXAMPLE THAT I FLEW THROUGH WAS THIS CLOTHING STORE. WE'RE GOING TO TALK A LOT ABOUT RETAIL AND WHOLESALE IN THAT SECTION, BUT JUST DID WANT TO FLAG HERE THAT THIS um, SMALL CLOTHING STORE WOULD SEE A 13% INCREASE under this proposal. Okay, the next um, activity to go through is advanced services. You can see here all of the business activities that we have listed here. um, And some of the percent differences, again, between the two (laughs) 2026 as is and 2026 proposed um, listed here. As it's a little bit hard to understand what these mean, we're going to go through an example or two. Um, Here we have a packaged software company uh, with worldwide receipts of $25 million. 30% of their payroll is in San Francisco. um, And about $100,000 of their their gross receipts are attributable to San Francisco. So that's what's used in this calculation. Um, Here you'll see they end up with a 25% reduction. Um, if you move over to an online data management company that's much bigger, 25 billion, they have 7% of their payroll in San Francisco and a billion dollars of San Francisco gross receipts. Um, here is the first time you'll see coming into play the homelessness gross receipts tax sunsetting. So you'll see 100% of the homelessness gross receipts tax goes away, but that's largely put back into their gross receipts tax base. This is also a business that pays the overpaid executive tax. Um, and due to the you know, 90% reduction, this particular business is gonna get a 91% reduction in that rate with an overall 3% change. Um, next, we have financial services. Um, overall, this industry would see a 17% increase. Um, and here, if you had a financial services company with $100 million in worldwide receipts, but five of those in San Francisco and 10% of their payroll in San Francisco, um, their tax bill is going to go up 64%.
13: Um,
16: next, we have the real property category, um, real estate and accommodations. And um, the, the difference here between these two types of businesses is that the changes for what we um, call B B C or the commercial rents tax, are, um, are realized for the first category, the real estate and rental and leasing services. That's where you'll see that 25% reduction in the commercial rents tax come into play. But accommodations do not pay that tax, um, so that reduction doesn't, have the same impact for them. So you'll see here, a commercial real estate company. um, Again, their apportionment is 100% based on sales. Um, You'll see the reduction in um, their commercial rents tax. So they go from paying $875,000 in commercial rents tax to $656,000, and that largely drives their overall reduction of 26%. Okay, and this is where it gets uh, it gets kind of more interesting. Um, retail and wholesale trade. Um, so here you see a, a general breakdown, and you'll see large increases for both retail and wholesale trade. Um, what exactly does this mean um, for this these industries? The changes to apportionment and allocation have makes for some very big swings um, because you're going to 75% of their um, calculation coming from their sales and 25% uh, for payroll. So let's start with a wholesale market. Um, There are, I can't give you specific examples. That would violate somebody's um, confidentiality, but you can think of several big wholesale markets in San Francisco selling different things. Um, This one, and I'll say all of these examples are made up. Um, We tried to make them realistic, but they are not real businesses. So this example is a $50 million um, business. 65% of their payroll is in San Francisco, um, but a, a modest portion, 5 million of their overall overall receipts are attributable to San Francisco. And overall, they get a reduction of 37%. Um, and here, that big reduction is largely because of how much payroll they have in San Francisco. That's really kind of like moderating the what's going on here for this company. Um, in this example, um, this is a large retailer with $10 billion worldwide. Um, they don't have any employees in San Francisco. Uh, and they sell about $25 million into San Francisco. They see a 78% increase in their tax bill. So this is a company, again, with no employees here. Um, If you compare that to a large retailer um, with some payroll here, it's very different. The outcome here is um, a reduction of 60%. Again, that's because of that importance of that payroll factor here. Um, This business also benefits because they pay the overpaid executive tax, and so having that reduction does um, net some difference as well. Okay, lastly for this category is a large grocery retailer. Um, this is a very large company, $40 billion. Um, they have 2% of their payroll in San Francisco and $500 million in their gross receipts. Um, they see a 160% increase in their taxes under this proposal. And our last category, we're shopping for names. If anyone can think of something better than all other, I would appreciate it. Um, We have uh, kind of a mix of things here. So transportation, construction, food services, arts. with a a kind of wide range of impacts. Um, One thing that's important to note in this category is some of these categories are very small. Um, So their overall gross receipts are very small. So where you see a a difference that looks um, like it stands out quite a bit, that's usually because it's a handful of taxpayers that are causing this swing. Um, So Um, Overall, for these examples, like what does this mean? One of our goals was to look at concentration risk of our our top taxpayers and what that would mean to our business tax base if businesses were to leave. Um, So we went from having 28% of our revenue coming from five taxpayers. That's down to 23%. Um, and there's reductions in each level, the top five, top 10, top 100. Um, but more so than just those percentages are kind of what I talked to you about. These businesses, if they are to leave San Francisco under this proposal, will still pay quite a bit of taxes um, because of the way that we've weighted San Francisco sales in that calculation. So the risk IS REDUCED BECAUSE THE TAXES ARE REDUCED AND ALSO BECAUSE IF THEY LEAVE, WE'LL STILL GET THE TAX REVENUE FROM THESE COMPANIES. Um, Another portion of this is to improve predictability for taxpayers. We hear a lot that this is a really complicated set of taxes. It's hard for them to predict year over year what they're going to owe. So we're proposing a number of changes. One is to move the tax extension deadline. This largely impacts large taxpayers um, because our deadline February 28th is well before the federal and state deadlines, which come in the fall. Um, and so when it's time for them to file, they're like, we don't even have the information. They file, and then they end up amending their returns in the fall. And those, that can cause some major swings, and it causes you know the controller to hold that revenue because we're not sure if we're really going to, if that, those, those numbers are going to hold or not. Um, so we're proposing to shift um, to a later extension deadline Um, to formalize a voluntary disclosure agreement procedure. These are for taxpayers who realize, oops, I should have been paying taxes all these years and I haven't been, and they voluntarily come forward. We have a program now, but we don't have it well publicized or explained, so we wanna change that. Um, We also are exploring different ways that taxpayers under this proposal could request and receive guidance upfront rather than through audit. Um, AND THEN WE'RE ALSO GOING TO BE CONVENING INTERESTED PARTIES MEETINGS um, TO GET FEEDBACK FROM TAXPAYERS ABOUT OUR ONLINE FORM. The other thing that we hear a lot is there's just so many new taxes. Um, So even if you pass this, what's to say that in a couple of years someone isn't going to come and change it again? Um, So the controller's office did a scan statewide of how other jurisdictions get tax measures on the ballot. It's much, much easier in San Francisco to get a tax measure on the ballot. So we're going to be proposing a series of reforms um, to make getting a tax measure on the ballot in line with a charter amendment right now. Um, This slide just has a summary of all of the changes I just talked about, and um, we're requesting feedback uh, by December 13th. If you get it in a little later, that's okay. That's just our suggested, what we're hoping for. Um, And then we'll submit final recommendations to the mayor and the board by the end of this year um, to kick off what may be the next part of the process. And that's it. Happy to take
1: questions. Great. Thank you so much for the... You're all awake. That was a lot of information. (laughs) (laughs) Commissioners, any questions?
16: Um, Oh, I know um, we had a question earlier about the license fees. So I can go back
17: to that if you'd like.
1: Okay, I'll go Commissioner Herbert first.
17: Thanks again. Um, All the numbers make my head spin. I I just like to make lattes, pretty much. Um, But I was just had a random question, which is, how does the office of the controller track the remote workers, since there's so much of the payroll tax has to do with the overall tax?
16: Sure, so um, the gross receipts tax right now um, if you have, if you're in a business activity category where it matters, where your San Francisco payroll is part of the calculation, you do have to report that to the tax collector every year as part of your filing. Mm-hmm. Um, where it really comes up substantively is in audit. Um, so if there's a dispute around your your payroll number, and companies have many ways to sort of show us their um, payroll in San Francisco versus outside. Um, You know, it's sort of it's company specific how they choose to do that and what we ask for. Um, But in general, we were able, and, and the and the report from the summer really codifies shows what happened when businesses had workers. Um, working remotely outside of San Francisco, what the difference in the tax payments would have been if all of those workers stayed in San Francisco. Um, So we really are able to track it and and track the impact. It's not I wouldn't say it's lost revenue, but we're able to compare if all of those workers were showing up in person in San Francisco, this is what this company would have paid um, compared to what they
17: actually paid. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then um, how can we collect tax? This is might be obvious, but how, how does the uh, tax collector's office collect taxes from businesses who leave San Francisco? What, how is that justified?
16: Sure, there's um, what's called nexus is uh, the requirements to in order to register as a business in San Francisco and pay our business taxes. Um, back in. I may mess up the year. I want to say 2018, as part of the, actually, it was part of the cannabis tax measure. There was a um, part of that proposal that changed the requirement so that any business that sells more than $500,000 into San Francisco, even if they have no physical presence here, has to register and pay taxes. Um, And so that's sort of a compliance exercise for our office to make sure that we're getting, um, you know, that we're understanding. all the companies that are operating that might be selling into San Francisco and making sure that they're registering and paying taxes.
17: Got it, okay, thank you. Yeah.
1: Oh, sure. Vice President Susana, is that, no? Yeah, I'm okay right now.
15: Thank you for your presentation. Yes, I just wanted to. I have three questions. One is if there's a specific list or breakdown of the regulatory license fees that you all are looking at. I, I know even some of us have met with the controller's office mm-hmm. around in-depth studies we've done on on uh, regulatory license fees that you know ha- should have had audits by this time or you know in compliance with reporting or. You know, just needing to be streamlined or duplicative, and with ABC law, whatever, right? We we've worked on that quite a lot. So mm-hmm. my first question was, we'd probably love to see any specific fees, um, and I can tell you a couple, if you know, that we've flagged. If that's helpful for you, um, and then if um, any of those are actually to be sunset or if they're being reduced. So, kind of the specific specifics of that, and then um, how you all um, your objective framework for for deciding what needed to kind of be on the chopping block and whether it was in line with when they were created, um, you know looking at past audits, like what types of materials were you all considering in that process to make those decisions, and then um Yeah, that was my main question for, yeah, those were my main two questions, and then I have a smaller one later. Sure. So um,
16: right now, all of the regulatory licenses um, come out to about $14 million. So the $10 million we're talking about is almost everything. Mm -hmm. Um, We have, you know, on our website, like we have a list of every license fee right now that's charged on that bill. We haven't yet figured out like how exactly this part will work. Mm-hmm. It's it's more of a conceptual model saying um, based on some work that our office did to look at how regressive these fees are for small businesses um, because they're flat, um, you know, small businesses pay the same as very large businesses. Um, and so the impact if you add the license fees onto taxes make some the smallest businesses have the highest effective tax rate. Um, And so that's sort of the argument underpinning this, is it really doesn't make sense. The rest of our tax structure is really progressive, and we have this outlier with the license fees. So the goal is really to reduce or eliminate um, as many as possible through this. I think the question, there will be a lot of um, procedural questions around how exactly that works. Businesses will still need to apply for, get permitted, um, get inspected. so, So that part needs to stay the same. Obviously, the departments still need to be compensated for their work, and that all needs to happen. Um, So the question here is, can we reduce the annual cost um, so that it's not a monetary burden on the smallest businesses, and instead build that revenue into the overall tax structure? um, So it's spread out among, you know, 14,000 businesses instead of the number of businesses that pay right now, which is much, much smaller.
15: Wow, that's Honestly, this is like the best news I feel like I've ever gotten from this comm- sitting on this side of the commission because yeah. I feel like this could be um, something we can market to small businesses as huge, you know. And just like you said, conceptually, seeing fees that increase um, with no recourse is why small businesses are mad all the time, you know. And if we were able to show them, hey, you don't have this random line item, you know, um, that would go very far. Yeah. <laughs> so that's very exciting news that you're looking that comprehensively at, at the regulatory license um, schedules. Um, and I would love maybe we can talk as staff um, to our staff about, uh, or maybe in our discussion, what we can give you all in that would be helpful that we've contemplated over the yeah. years in this area.
16: yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I think the the complication is going to come in and like how do we operationalize that? How does it work? I think from like the big picture, it's like sure we'll take the revenue and move it here that's fine um, and so it'd be great to have your partnership to figure that out.
15: absolutely, and I think we you know we've tackled some of the low hanging ones too that um, I think through amazing staff research have shown and already done the due diligence of showing that it you know, cost savings can still be recouped here, but this in itself, you know, is just a burden, right? So we've definitely looked at through that lens, and I think um, we'd be happy to send some some of that work to you. Um, and then my last question, since we're talking about business taxes, I know small businesses um, also deal with um, the real property from the assessor, and. That's something that's been a lot of confusion for small businesses and calculations over the years. I don't know if that's being considered in this.
16: Unfortunately, that's yeah. a state law. Oh. Um, it's part of state property taxes. God. And so we don't have the authority to change anything about it. God, um, it's just so passed
15: through assessor. Yeah. Interesting. OK, yeah. I didn't realize that. Thank you. Sorry. No,
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Commissioner ortiz Cartaña.
18: Thank you, Madam. President. Amanda, thank you for presentation. Great. We're excited. I actually had a question from a small business. So let me see if I get it right. Um, some of the small businesses that contract with the city, mm-hmm. they have huge amounts of pass through, right? Like during construction or hauling or whatever. So maybe they get reimbursed, they do get reimbursed. Let's say it's 20 million, but their actual management fee maybe is only half a million of the whole contract. When calculating this, does that affect the gross receipts or should they just highlight the management fees that they're getting for these pass-through reimbursable city contracts?
16: In general, um, businesses have to report all of their receipts. Um, so it's, it's the whole number. It's not the answer that that business wants um, me to say. Um, I will say, particularly for construction subcontractors, that's an issue we've, we've heard about um, for a while. And I would definitely recommend them to be engaged in the next part of this process if that moves along. Because I think those are the types of you know, feedback and tweaks that I think policymakers, that's really a policy choice, um, could, could change.
1: I I just had a couple questions. Let's see. Um, How do you think this is going to, or will it affect um, companies encouraging people to come back into the office um, for in-person work?
16: I'll try to channel Ted Egan here. It's not totally my lane.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um,
16: I think, in general, right now there there's a, a sense and a reality that the way that our taxes calculate make it a little bit harder to bring employees back. Whether or not that's really factoring into businesses' decisions, I'm not sure. Um, you know, the tax people are pretty separate from from the HR folks. But let's assume that it's you know it, it matters. Um, certainly under this, reducing the, the the payroll factor would make it easier. You know, it's a it's better for the businesses to bring workers back into San Francisco. We're reducing that penalty that exists in our current structure. Um, the other thing right now is we the San Francisco becomes more competitive when you look at other municipalities' business taxes. Um, you know, right now they're still going to pay more to be in San Francisco, but not as much more <laughs> to be in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That's the reality.
1: Yeah, that chart last time was during the presentation. The comparison was interesting. Yeah, <laughs> um, and just to clarify, anybody who sells in into San Francisco should be registering with San Francisco if they have
16: five hundred thousand dollars or more in sales. sales.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and and oh, just. I don't know if I didn't understand I, I don't know. I didn't understand why um, clothing retail was like um, going to go up so much.
16: Yeah. So let me
1: actually go back.
16: Okay. So if you look at the rates here. Um, I know it's hard to digest this all as you're looking at it. But one thing that's interesting with the wholesale and retail category um, is how progressive it is. And this is tax progressive, not political progressive, (laughs) um, meaning that it starts very low um, compared to other industries um, and then increases at a different clip mm-hmm. than the increases in the other industries. Um, again, these are all things that could be tweaked in a model, right? You could you could lower the rates for smaller businesses and raise the rates for higher businesses. It's all a bit of a balance. Um, but in wholesale, wholesale and retail, there's certainly um, their tax rate is low for for the smallest businesses, and then and then continues to go up um, for the retail industry, the move to have 75% come from their sales is pretty um, substantial for businesses that have workers inside and outside of San Francisco um, or are operating inside and outside of San Francisco. Um, but the increase is, is just the rates that you see here reflected. So for that small retailer that was only in San Francisco, that rate is higher than the rate currently. Um, and that's how it's in how it is in the model, and again, something that could certainly be adjusted up or down um, in the next phase.
1: So, like um, like businesses that have like just an ecom kind of business, right? Like they and they're not in San Francisco; they're not necessarily like a registered San Francisco business, but they sell over five hundred thousand dollars in sales in San Francisco. How do you go? I mean, are they all registered? I, I, it, I don't understand how <laughs> There's um, so many of them.
16: There are so many of them. Um, you know, we have a, we have a team of investigators. Um, it's really a data project because those corporations are, you know, doing things like paying sales tax to the state of California um, and taking other actions. That it's not that hard for us to find them. Um, you know, it, it has over time like ramped up since it's a fairly new change to our code. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly something that we look at quite a bit um, and follow up on.
13: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because this seems like it kind of takes into account the the um, larger kind of businesses that generally operate um, on online, right? Right. Okay. Cool. Um, Director Tang.
5: Oh, thank you, um, Amanda, for your presentation, um, and I appreciate that. In one of the recommendations, that um, it was this, I forget which slide it was on, but it was discussed trying to put up front more information mm-hmm. for. Um, Uh, businesses to better understand you know what category or you know what the rates are and so forth and just in general not even with just business taxes I think uh, we hear from a lot of small business owners the the need for more information up front for clarity um, to hopefully prevent issues down the line so really want to encourage that thank Thank you you.
1: Commissioner Ortiz-Cartana
18: not, just because i'm gonna get asked and i want to have an answer let's say this construction company is about five million gross four million gross receipts san francisco million elsewhere 75 percent 80 percent payroll still in san francisco what are you thinking like how can i calculate how can i give them an answer
16: um if you want to email me i'm happy to okay. to to mock up an example like that
18: and a construction definitely can't be, do that in my head yeah and construction would be like advanced services now Under the new? Um, Under the five categories?
16: Double check. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Construction is an all other.
18: It's an all other. Okay. Thank you.
1: Uh, Vice President Susanis.
15: I just quickly wanted to say um, the item of voluntary disclosure agreement formalizing what. So that's bringing people into compliance is what that's meant for, and yeah. we really like that here. So thank you again for, for that, because a lot of businesses um, feel like they're scared to negotiate mm-hmm. with an agency, um, and this opens a door for compliance. So what exactly needs to be uh, done in to? to make the is it the look back that is the specific edit on that
16: or? um it's it's two things the look back is changed that's huh. that's a ch- that's a clear change and the other thing is right now we don't it, this exists but you can't find it on our website right. so you sort of have to ask which is very scary and i get those calls sometimes right. like i'm representing a business i can't tell you who they are yeah. but like what would happen right. um, and so the one thing i'll say and this would remain the same under this new proposal is it it only comes into play, voluntary disclosure, if we've never contacted you before. Um, you truly have to be off our radar. So mm-hmm. if it's a business and we've sent them a letter saying, we think you're operating here, you need to register, that, that's not a voluntary disclosure. We, you know, we, we already identified the business. Um, but we do, from time to time, get businesses that are like, oops. Um, I just realized like I, you know, exceeded that $500,000 threshold or, you know, I opened up and just like I had, I had a bad accountant. I had no idea. Um, And and that happens. And it's in, it's a shared interest between the city and the business to get them into compliance um, as quickly as possible. Um, And so I think this reduced look back in line, this is what the state does as well Is just, you know, would be, would be clean um, and just making the rules a little bit more upfront.
15: OK, yeah, I'd love to learn more about how, how that is meant to work, just because I, I feel like that there's also regulatory license fees that people have ignored Not. because they're scary, they don't understand them, and then yep. they accrue, and they don't know how to settle it. Yeah. So anything real, bringing com, small businesses into compliance, we're happy to help you with the public facing end of when that plays out.
1: Thank you. Commissioner
15: Herbert.
17: Thank you. In the interest of providing feedback, would it be possible to get a copy of your presentation? Sure. It's
16: posted online okay. um, in the controller's Office website. They have a section for business tax reform. You can also find it through the Treasurer's website, either way. Um, it is posted. And then my, um, sorry, I thought my email address was on here, but it's Amanda dot freed, F-R-I-E-D, at sfgov.org. Um, and then this was also blasted out in the OSB newsletter. Um, if you get that, there was a, a summary with the link to the slides and email addresses to um, or a, a website where you can give contact. It all goes to the same place, so feel free to email me or if you know Laurel and the mayor's office, Economic Workforce Development, or um, Ted Egan, or Ben Rosenfield, we're all gonna get it and we're all gonna share it with each other, so um, there's no wrong door at this point. The most important thing is you get your feedback in. Great,
17: thank you.
1: Well, let's see. There. Does anybody else have any, no questions? He, Thank you very much, Amanda, for coming today. Oh, we need to take public comment, but I just want to appreciate how much work this is because I know there were many, many meetings, and this is material that's very challenging for people to engage with in the super abstract, (laughs) and I think you really kind of honed it into something where people can can give feedback and find themselves within the categories, and even if they gave feedback based on their own experience, I think that would be super beneficial. So I would encourage um, everyone to kind of consider where they stand, what this looks like, because perhaps you're not the only person that feels that way. So um, this is the opportunity to, to really be part of this um, process. So thank you so much for bringing this forth and thank you for uh, my co-commissioners, Director Tang, for um, attending so many meetings. Um, yeah. to, so many <laughs> to bring two-way feedback thank you thank you um, so any public comment
0: if public commenters want to line up my left looks like none
1: <laughs> great thank you so much have a great night um, item number five
0: Item five, Board of Supervisors, file 230768, authorizing and permitting neighborhood amenities. This is a discussion item. The commission will learn about an ordinance amending the public works code to streamline and authorize the approval of certain neighborhood amenities in sidewalks and other public right of ways within the Department of Public Works jurisdiction to reduce the fees for certain minor encroachments and clarify permitting revocation and restoration requirements for all minor encroachment permits. Presenting today, we have Beth Rubenstein with the Department of Public Works.
19: I'm going Hi, I'm Beth Rubenstein, but Jen Lowe from uh, Supervisor Melgar's office is going to go first.
20: I'll just keep this really brief. Thank you so much, commissioners, for calendaring this item again. I'm Jen Lowe super, uh, from Supervisor Melgar's office. We're the sponsor of this legislation. We've been working in very close partnership with the Public Works Department on this legislation, which we have aptly named Love Our Neighborhoods. As many of you know, um, how much San Franciscans, our community members and merchants, really love to give back to the communities that they live in, play in, work in, and contribute to. And so what we have learned over the years is that many of these wonderful projects in the public right-of-way and in public spaces, like murals, or maybe even a shared library, oftentimes have to go through process because they're in the public right-of-way, and we have a lot of rules and regulations around that. But they probably weren't intended for painted murals, on, say, a retaining wall or tiled staircases or that said bookcase on your sidewalk. Um, And so what we wanted to do was to make it easier for San Franciscans to love our neighborhoods and to create these projects. And so what this legislation aims to do is to create a completely new process for what we call our Love Our Neighborhoods permits. And Beth is going to go through kind of what this looks like. But we're hoping to achieve here is to encourage more projects to go through a better um, system, because right now Believe it or not, like tiled staircases is considered a major encroachment process, which has to go through the Board of Supervisors for approval and hearings. And it's already a really a lot of work to get all these neighbors and donors involved to do something wonderful for the community. So we want to make it easier. And that's what we aim to do here. I do want to note that we did get some feedback from um, community benefits uh, districts and some merchant groups that we incorporated as much as we could into this legislation. But Supervisor Melgar um, intends to have trailing legislation to iterate on this. this this. This is creating something completely new. Like like I said before, what we have in our current code is minor encroachment processes. You know, ridiculous permit schemes and you know major encroachment processes. This is completely new, and so by doing so, we're going to have some kinks along the road and some questions that come up. and And we want to iterate, we want to improve on it, and we want to get feedback from the people out there um, who are doing these wonderful projects um, to benefit their community. So I'm going to hand it over to Beth to kind of go into detail. The legislation went through the Land Use and Transportation Committee, went to the full board for a first reading last week. It's going to um, go for a second reading at the full board tomorrow. But as I previously mentioned, we're still STILL GOING TO BE WORKING OUT um, MANY OF THESE THINGS IN THE REGULATIONS, BUT ALSO IN TRAILING LEGISLATION. SO YOUR FEEDBACK IS STILL WELCOME. AND LIKE I SAID, WE WANT TO MAKE THIS AS EASY AND PAINLESS AS POSSIBLE TO ENCOURAGE MORE OF THESE PROJECTS. THANK YOU.
19: THANKS, Jen. Um, HI, I'M BETH RUBENSTEIN. I'M THE DEPUTY DIRECTOR OF POLICY AND COMMUNICATION AT PUBLIC WORKS. I'M SUPER PLEASED TO BE HERE AND THANK YOU, COMMISSIONERS, FOR INVITING ME. I do want to say, as I go through this, is that we've been focused on uh, capital projects, so permanent projects. And I know that um, that small businesses are definitely really interested in activations and temporary projects. And it would be something I said to Director Tang, it is something that we would like to look at in the future, but it's not in this legislation. So, But you'll see there is a lot in this legislation. Um, and as Jen mentioned, we really carve this out of minor and major encroachments, and, and what we're carving out of is community-driven projects in the public right-of-way that benefit the community. So it's not, you know, like an ATT construction project. It's not even like a personal property owner who wants to put a um, enclosure for their trash cans. That's not community benefit. It's for, it's for the community. So. Uh, just looking at sort of the let's see, yeah. So obviously, the other thing, um, the mission of Public Works is to be stewards of the public way, public right of way, and ensure sort of safety and accessibility for all. So in this permit and what we've worked really closely with Professor, I mean Professor Supervisor Melgar about, is um, is making it easier and more accessible to do these projects, but also making sure that we make sure they're accessible to all people mobility issues, site issues, so on. And um, so, path of travel and safety. So, we don't want rickety, scary things in the public right of way. Um, so, the goal, you can see the goal is to um, is to create a user-friendly, inexpensive, and better coordinated with other city departments um, a, a permit process. Um, so, in developing the permit, and we started last spring, we did a we did kind of a listening session, as Jen mentioned. we talked to CBDs, we talked to merchant associations, we talked to nonprofits like Parks Alliance, and we talked to other city staff like in the community challenge Grant um, uh, office to sort of see like how things go and it, what was interesting is we heard the same pinch points from all. All stakeholders, which is sort of a good sign um, in that everyone agreed, and also is a clear sign that there were some broken pieces. So, um, some of the things that came up is that wanting a better coordination between departments, um, you know. um, Community members, many of them who are volunteers who are doing these kind of work, they'll go to Public Works for a, a permit, and then then they'll hear, oh, well, we actually have to get approval from the Arts Commission, and actually maybe MTA has to review it, and maybe PUC. You know, it sort of goes on and on. There was a really clear uh, desire for a one portal, you know, one in, one out, which, like, honestly, makes it a little hard on Public Works because we don't have jurisdiction over MTA and Arts Commission. But it does mean, but we can sort of streamline it and we can track it. Part of that is also having a permit process that's more transparent. So, as a as an applicant, you could we want you to be able to go online and see where it is in the process. If it's being if it's stuck at MTA, you should know. <laughs> um, or if it's stuck at, stuck at Public Works, you should know. Or if you can just see how it's moving through uh, the processes. The other thing we heard was um the expense and like the board we've the board does a lot of workarounds in terms of waiving fees and um, th- you know that's that's a workaround it's not a long term solution, so we looked very carefully at the, the current fees for like minor encroachments and major encroachments, we looked at those and we also looked at the annual assessment fees because, and these were developed more for like construction projects and development projects, not for community-driven projects. So you see we got rid of, we lessened the fees considerably. And just to remind you, those fees were only cost retrieval to begin with. We're not making any profit, but uh, we did reduce them. Um, yeah, but it basically covered like that, like sort of reducing redundancy. So when we we have a permit, it's good for all departments. Like a applicant doesn't find out a month in, like oh, you actually need extra information for another city agency. So this is a this permit covers a range of projects, small and large, everything from. Um, something like a little library sits so in front of one property owner to a CBD applying for a multi-amenity project that includes benches, lighting, a mural, a street mural and so on. So. I, Each one has very different requirements. So the way we dealt with that is we divided the projects into three tiers. Um, And the first tier is actually, um, it's only for, the applicant is just a private property owner, and the project is in front of that one property. And in fact, it's not a permit. It's, we call it a registration, because it doesn't um, have a fee. Like, legally, our city attorneys say we can't call, we, we don't call something without a fee a permit. So this is a registration. Um, and it's, it's free. And it doesn't have to go through any other city departments. And basically, the applicant self-certifies. What's, what's important, they self-certify that they follow the guidelines set out by Public Works. And what's important is, is that right now, people are putting out little libraries or benches in the public right-of-way. And that's, those are lovely amenities. But sometimes, they're not in the correct location. They, they're either um, in the path of travel they get in the way, or they're too close to a tree, and um, we definitely want to protect our trees, or they're too close to a parked car. So we need to have very clear guidelines and people need to self-certify. Um, tier 2 projects, honestly, are sort of the bulk of the real projects that our community does. Um, some examples you can see are like a tiled staircase. Um, the, this is Kensington Bridge over um, um, over um, Portola Avenue, the Painted Bridge, or the bottom one is a um, is a sidewalk mural in Mira Loma, the hop, skip, and jump. Um, so these are the projects that most communities do. And some of them previously were minor encroachments, some of them are major encroachments. We're carving all that out. Um, what they all have in common is that the applicant must be an organization, can't be an individual. These are projects that are in in front of multiple property owners. They're on retaining walls. They're on existing staircases in the right-of-way. They're along uh, corridors. So the applicant has to be a nonprofit organization, a merchant association, a CBD, something like that. And the types of projects you can see go from painted and tiled murals, sidewalk murals, um, commemorative plaques. We, they came, we tightened up the process for commemorative plaques because it was very confusing and it would go back and forth to and from the Board of Supervisors, so that's much clearer. And it also includes string lights along commercial corridors, um, like all these string lights that we love right now, that are like in almost every corridor. Honestly, they've been put up willy-nilly. There's been no permitting done by any department for them, um, from from our. I mean, this is what we found from our research. And there are some dangers. Like, MTA is concerned that sometimes they're um, too close to live MTA lines. Also, like I was on Valencia Street the other day, and there was some string laying that was, like, hanging low. You know, who do you call? We don't know. Because we don't know who's responsible for it. So they need we need to bring that into the permit world. Um, low cost. It's $500 for a permit. Um, previously, it was probably around more like $3,000 for like, I mean, it could have been it could have been three to five or $6,000 for a minor or major encroachment, and plus there was an annual fee that was based on square footage. So $500 is, is a pretty um, minimal fee if you think about these projects are easily eight ten thousand dollars $10,000. And these projects also typically have to be coordinated with other departments, but they would be through the, one, the one-stop portal. And then tier three are, um, may, like, they're the sort of more unusual projects, probably typically done by CBDs, um, that they're, they're either multi-amenity projects, like I mentioned before, or they're major landscape projects. We've, there are also projects that, we, that maybe we don't even imagine yet. Like, one project that we, that we have right now, um, I think it's in the sunset, is for fog catchers, which are these really cool ways of, uh, of irrigation using fog. Um, but these type of projects um, need greater um, engineering review. It's tier 2 needs re- engineering review, but Tier 3 is sort of a higher level of scrutiny. And the commensurate with that, the fee is $1,000 and these, these projects are even more expensive typically. So it's proportionally in relationship. Um, so just the components of the permit, so it, the legislation that Jen talked about and The tiers are all in the legislation. We hope it will be passed tomorrow. It was passed unanimously at first reading. and We have six co-sponsors. There's kind of trailing regulations. Our Bureau of Street Use and Mapping right now is working on those regulations. Those are really the specifics um, of dimensions and details. And it also lays out exactly how the process works. And then we have a whole communication plan that includes like an online, very user-friendly portal that's very clear, um, multilingual brochures, you know, posters and so on. And we also want to do some community outreach, particularly in, um, I mean, everywhere, but particularly in communities that maybe haven't done these community-driven projects because it seems really inaccessible and just overwhelming. And then this is, at the, last, this is the last slide. It just sort of shows our general timeline and how we got here. And open to any questions for myself or Jen. Thank
1: Thank you so much for the presentation. Um, Commissioner, Vice President Sazunas.
15: Thank you. Can you maybe give us a sense of how this would interplay with a small business? So, like, because I've only heard examples of private, like residential property owners or public
19: right of ways. It it doesn't, there's, there's not really an example we can think of right now well I'll tell you a simple example like a small business might just want to put a, a bench on the sidewalk but not to use for commercial purposes so it doesn't it's not instead of a tables and chairs permit um, or or a, bit, a small business might want to put a little library out you know like in the furnishing zone not obviously in path of travel um, so those would be sort of the the only ways that we can imagine like one single business owner we do imagine like commercial corridors as a group getting together to do these projects
15: okay um, thank you and you said these these are permanent fixtures you're looking at now but there might be another phase of more temporary and i feel like that might be something small businesses could then maybe better play into to host Com- events and completely. stuff completely
19: yeah i agree i mean i know when i spoke to your director that like that's definitely more Uh, in your wheelhouse in terms of interest, but like definitely did want to let you know this was happening and get any feedback. Yeah. Thank you. And
15: then my second question was you said um, as part of this study, you've been collecting data on um, fines and and that sort of thing that are incurred from public right-of-way use. Did you mention something that you were No, I didn't, data? didn't really
19: talk about fines. No, oh. but fee but fee structure. Like we we looked at our existing fee structure and it was quite it's quite expensive and typically a community group will go to their supervisor and ask them to waive and so you have legislation that's a workaround and we were trying to avoid that and just sort of say let's have a let's have a reasonable uh, fee structure that's well well below cost recovery but does make a group have to um, have a little skin in the game because in most in tier two and three there's definitely fundraising involved and we, we work with community groups all the time and we see that you know that sometimes they get grants from the city or sometimes they um, you know raise funds in the neighborhood okay yeah
15: uh, yeah I was just curious about that just because I know that um, that's a bigger topic of, of public right away. Um, incursions and we'd love to see data on you know we we all want to help better use of our public right-of-ways and so if there is part of this where you are collecting data on use of public right-of-ways and and mm-hmm. where there's been um, you know uh, where you want to bring people into
19: compliance so that would be helpful for, for us to see if there is data around that okay yeah we haven't looked at that for this but I think yeah for um, maybe sort of the the next round of a different type of legislation, yeah, I think that'd be interesting to see. Thank you.
1: Commissioner Herbert.
17: I I just want to say thank you for your presentation. Um, These projects are so important to the vibrancy of the city and, and bringing people together in the community, and it's just great that you're working on reducing the fee structure and just making it more palatable for neighborhood groups, and it's really important work, and thank you.
19: Thank you, yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, I think when we, when we describe San Francisco to our friends or like our visitors, like we wanna take them right to the murals or the tiled staircases, I mean, these are the places, or that beautiful little garden, um, you know, in the business district, these are the places that we feel pride of pride, pride place, so yeah, thanks.
1: Commissioner Benitez.
2: Cool, thank you for your presentation. And I concur with um, Commissioner Herbert as well that doing these kind of things is really brings like an identity to the neighborhood, I think is really great. Um, one of the things you had mentioned about this was uh, trying to speed up the timeline. I'm just curious what the current timeline is from application to, to, to approval and what do you hope to shave that down to? I've sat in some of these merchant meetings as well where we're just constantly waiting and just waiting for approvals, but what, what's the current timeline now and what's your projection of what you hope it can eventually be?
19: Yeah, you know, it depends on the project. As you can see, there's a range. Oh, yeah, Is there a yeah. I mean, for the, the major encroachment projects for so like a tiled staircase, we've worked, I mean, like Jen and I and others have worked a lot with community groups around tiled staircases. And because major encroachment projects have to go through the Board of Supervisors, I mean, we say it takes 12 to 18 months for that to happen. Um, and then honestly, during COVID, like everything just super slowed down. You know, so we do have groups that like have been working on this for two years. Um, and have a community challenge grant and then the community challenge grant has a certain time limit in terms of their funding requirements and then they get out of compliance with their CCG grant, you know. So, I mean, those are things we were listening to. I mean, for major encroachments because they will not have to go through the board, easily see that being cut in half. Um, I can't say right now, you know. You know, there's going to, I mean, honestly, there'll be a little bit of a learning curve when we introduce this because it'll be be a new portal, um, a new staff and so on, but we feel like we know the the projects well, so it's it's definitely going to be considerably different. Now the the, the other caveat I would say is that especially, um, I mean, Tier 1 will just happen automatically, but for Tier 2 and 3 where it has to go to other departments, like definitely going to the Arts Commission. You know, a lot of them go to the arts commission, but there are many that go to MTA and PUC, and we can't really control how long they sit there. We can encourage them, you know, and we can put we can put pressure on them, or my colleagues can put political pressure on them. So we can't, you know, we're not in charge of the full process. Great, uh,
5: Director Tang. Thank you. Uh, I just had a question that I know has come up um, repeatedly, so just perhaps we could get some clarity on the record. But if a single business owner wants to get string lights on, just say the tree, the one tree in front of their shop, um, it seems like it would be tier two. But um, let's say it's just a business and it's not a nonprofit, it's not a CVD, it's not a merchants association that's going to be applying for this permit. Would the single business owner have to apply for this permit for five hundred dollars? Um, Yeah, if you could just clarify that situation.
19: I I believe I believe it would be tier one actually because it would just be in front of one property owner. So, um, you know, so one of the things is we're talking about property owners. We're not talking about tenants. So that um, so that's actually really important, Um, and particularly because many of your business owners are tenants. You know, they're not landlords. But the way this is set up um, in terms of liability and legal is around uh, uh, property owners. Um, so, and we haven't like we haven't had city attorney look at it in terms of tenants um, and business tenants. I mean, that is something, you know, as Jen mentioned, it might be something we could do in trailing legislation. Um,
5: or a question because uh, when it comes to say things like building permits that are usually pulled by business tenants, what they'll do is they'll have to get a property owner sign off. Um, and so, is that something that you would contemplate then? Instead of, I don't know that it would need to be trailing legislation, but more of implementation that a small business owner would need to come in with a property owner package?
20: I think we want to keep this as simple as possible. So I think that's one of the questions that we need to answer in the regulations. And I think yours is a very specific question to string lights that's on a public tree. Um, And so I think, you know, if we do do a registration process, it's a little different than installing, say, a little library. So I think we'd probably have something a little bit different for that, depending on whether or not, you know, that string light is going to be plugged in or if it's just battery operated. I think those are like the nuances that need to get worked out in the registration process. But yes. I think to your point, we'd try to, we would like to make it as easy as possible to not have to require you know, all these different types of regulations if it's not necessary. So if it's not like a permanent structure, I would venture to think that they would not necessarily need um, permission from a property owner, because it's not necessarily on their property, but in the public right of way, and would need to get permission, so to speak, from public works. I hope that answers the question.
5: That would be ideal to make it as simple as possible. So, so again, you're going back to this, you're saying it's most likely tier one, not tier two. We,
19: we have to, we probably have to look. You know, I, I would say that our intention when talking about string lighting in tier two is we were looking at lights down the corridor. Um, we haven't really addressed like specifically lights in front of a store, like one, one property owner. So we'd have to sort of look at that during our, the regulations piece.
5: Okay, yeah. that would be great, because that question does come up a lot, so you have yeah. to be able to provide the correct information
19: people. Yeah, we will definitely look Thank into you. that and get back to you.
1: Great. I just had um, a few questions. Let's see, for, um, for any, I think, mostly for Tier 1, but maybe you could speak to the other tiers as well. What is the um, responsibility for, like, neighborhood outreach for the applicant?
19: There, there's actually not for tier one. Um, there's no n- neighborhood outreach. You, as a private property owner, you can, you if you self-certify that you're within the um, the safety and accessibility guidelines, you can register for those types of you know on those types of projects. Yeah. Okay. And then tier two
1: and three would be whatever it is that. They're currently, kind of is right now. Currently,
19: you know, and this they slightly change maybe when we get to the regulations, but I'm not expecting it to. Is that currently we're working off of what the arts commission requires because to, most of these are like murals and tiled staircases, and they re- require letters of letters of support. They don't require noticing.
1: Okay.
19: So. And for the string lights, you know. Um,
1: I was involved in a lot of the string lights that kind of went up in the city. We did our very best to keep them very
19: safe. (laughs) No, I know. I I love them, but I'm just saying it from like, right, from just my public works hat, I was was just saying there was not a permit. (laughs) Full
1: disclosure. (laughs) But, um, you know, one of the questions is just that, um, you know, the string lights tend to go like uh, through several, several blocks, right? And so... Um, And the projects also tend to kind of grow also. So sometimes like what we've seen, and this is where I think the the small business component comes in is like what you're saying, the merchant's associations or different neighborhood groups get involved. And it's kind of like, you know, this stretch, these five blocks get the string lights, and they're like, but like at that time, nobody else wanted the string lights, but then people see them and they're like, now I have string light envy, like how do I, how do I get string lights? I know. You know, yeah, and exactly. So the project kind of like grows and scales. So the five hundred dollars, are we looking at a five hundred dollars for you know the first five or the first phase of the things, and then the next people have to pay
19: another five hundred? Like,
1: where does this begin and end?
19: Yeah, I think like that's a great question and something we've thought about, but we haven't figured it out. I mean, the I think again, like if you go back to the goals, we're trying to make it easy and and sort of low barrier. So I, you know, we're not looking for places to like. Raise, raise money. Okay. Um, so I, I don't I don't know the answer to that, but I do understand it. I think what might become more complicated, I mean, what could become complicated for certain commercial corridors is like who's taking responsibility for it? You mm-hmm. know, So like the merchant association of that corridor may have decided like, okay, they put up five blocks and then like the stores in the next two blocks want them to, those folks will have to convince that merchant association to extend um you know extend the lights because again they have to be an organization
8: okay and
19: that's and that's so that there's like an ongoing commitment you know in terms of maintenance and liability you know because if it's just one person who's you know it's like even if it's like a beloved business owner who's been there 10 years or whatever we don't know what's going to happen in three years and like they may decide to leave or whatever so we need it to be an organization
1: sure um, and also, in terms of this one-stop portal, um, I'm wondering, like, I don't know. I don't want to harken back to something else, except I do kind of want to bring it up. Is like the, <laughs> you know, is the um, graffiti kind of uh, situation that for? A graffiti program? Or no. I think it's kind of like where you opt into the program, and then um, so small businesses. Had to opt into opt into this program, and um, I think Department of Public Works was that the right agency.
13: Yeah,
1: Yeah, would then um, be able to come out um, to certain to the corridors that are in uh, within the the legislation to um, help with graffiti removal, and um, that you know I was super excited about, Um, but then the sign up port the sign up. I don't know. I don't think it's really a portal. It was like a fax machine, I think. I believe there was like a fax component to it. So I'm just a little bit like a little bit like unsure about this idea of a one like stop 1993? portal. No, this I'm was like this last, year, last year, if you remember. No, I know about
19: this program. Um I didn't know about the fax machine. I do um I was not involved with that program. Um I I did hear that um the sequencing of the rollout was not as smooth as it could be, is what I've heard for the opt-in graffiti. You know, like we weren't quite ready when people wanted it to start. That's all I can say. I think our desire, and Jenna and I have been working on this a lot, is like we've been pushing this forward. We really want this to happen as soon as possible. We've got like five you know, tiled staircases that are, like, ready to go and they're super frustrated because it's been, like, two years, you know, so we want that to happen for them. And on the other hand, we want to do it right, you know, so we want to have that portal um, in really good shape. We want the regulations in really clear shape before we we launch it. So, you know, we're trying to balance that. We're trying to balance doing it well and doing it now.
1: Okay. Well... I look forward to seeing the one-stop portal. I think that would be really <laughs> great for for all of our agencies and I appreciate that you put that as a priority for this. And if there's any possible way to pass a post it to whoever is in charge of the fax machine cuz I just really want <laughs> <laughs> to find
19: out about that fax machine.
1: Sure. <laughs> I want to make sure small businesses like can take advantage of this cuz graffiti removal is so onerous for somebody to have to come and open their shop and have to remove Graffiti from their um, from their storefront, and there are still people getting notifications of violations of like graffiti, which is super disheartening in this type of environment. I think you were here earlier when you know businesses talked about some of the um, challenges that they're having this year, as well as in the past previous years. And it's like it's it's literally those little things that drive people mad. Yeah. Is that you know. It, you're already trying your very best every day, and then you get like a notification on your door that somebody graffitied your place, and that it's your responsibility to then remove it ASAP, you know? So I think, um, I think those kind of things are the things that we hear daily, and I'm sure you hear as a, you know, and so I'm hoping if we can get rid of that like low-hanging fruit, if we can get people logged into a one stop portal and like register your business for graffiti removal, that would be amazing. So I know
19: Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, will, I will definitely so, go back to my folks and ask them about yeah, that.
1: Yeah, just a little post-it note on their desk would be amazing. <laughs> Thank you. What's the um, any public comment?
0: Are there any public commenters in the room? Seeing oh. none?
1: Seeing no public comment, public comment is closed. Thank you so much for your presentation. Thank
0: you for having us. Item six, Legacy Business Program Fund, Conceptual Framework. This is a discussion item. The commissioner will review the current Legacy Business Program grant structure and discuss a strategy to make improvements to the existing rent stabilization grant. Presenting today, we have Richard Carrillo, Legacy Business Program Manager with the Office of Small Business. Welcome back,
3: Rick. Testing, good. (laughs) Good evening, commissioners. Richard Carrillo, Legacy Business Program Manager with the Office of Small Business, SFGovTV. I have a PowerPoint presentation. Today I'm going to present a proposal that the Office of Small Business is proposing. To do that, I need to provide the history of the Legacy Business Program and its grant programs. There are about 20 slides in the presentation. I'm going to try to keep the presentation to about five minutes. The legacy business program in San Francisco has a history that dates back to 2012. A business in Union Square, Gold Dust Lounge, was being evicted, which led the nonprofit organization San Francisco Heritage to create a legacy bars and restaurants program within their organization. By 2014, businesses throughout San Francisco were being threatened by escalating rents. In March 2015, the Legacy Business Registry was created by the Board of Supervisors through a city ordinance. To be eligible for the registry, a business must have, number one, operated in San Francisco for 30 or more years with no break in San Francisco operations exceeding two years. Number two, contributed to the neighborhood's history and or the identity of a particular neighborhood or community. And number three, be committed to maintaining the physical features or traditions that define the business. In November of that year, the approval of Proposition J on the ballot created the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund, which created two grant programs that I will discuss in greater detail. The Legacy Business Program is like a toolbox filled with different tools to help longstanding businesses continue and thrive. There are four categories of tools or assistance that we provide legacy businesses. Marketing, promotion, business assistance, grants, and legislation. Today I'm going to talk about grants. As I mentioned, the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund was established by a vote of the people and approved by about 57% of the voters in November 2015. The fund consisted of two grant programs, the Rent Stabilization Grant and the Business Assistance Grant. The Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund has its own section in the Administrative Code, Section 2A243, which is separate from the Legacy Business Registry and Section 2A242. This is important why I'm bringing it up at this point. The Rent Stabilization Grant is an incentive for landlords to provide long-term leases to legacy businesses. Landlords apply for and receive the grant. The grant pays up to $4.50 per square foot up to 5,000 square feet. So 1,000 square feet would be $5,000 per year and 5,000 square feet would be $22,500 per year. Grant applications are accepted year round. A biennial consumer price index adjustment has been added every two years since 2017-19. The business assistance grant was a former grant for legacy businesses. It paid up to $500 per full-time equivalent employee, up to 100 FTEs. So one FTE would be a $500 annual grant, and 100 FTEs would be a $50,000 annual grant. Biennial adjustments were also added to this grant. Note that there were no dedicated source of funds associated with Proposition J. The mayor generously included $1 million for grants and $20,400 $20, in the annual budget for the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund starting in 1617. Unspent funds rolled over to the following year. The Board of Supervisors generously provided additional funding during several fiscal years. There were numerous issues with the business assistant grant. It was not related to rent, which is generally the purpose of the legacy business program. It was difficult for applicants to produce payroll reports needed to confirm their data. It was extremely time consuming for Office of Small Business staff to review payroll reports. There was a big difference 100 times between the smallest and largest grants, and it was not worth the time and effort for micro-businesses to apply. After two years, sixteen seventeen and and uh, sorry I might have that wrong seventeen18 uh, is what it should be. Uh, there was no longer enough money to fully fund both the rent stabilization grant and the business assistance grant. since the rent stabilization grant was determined to be an effective strategy to stabilize long-standing businesses in San Francisco, and the business assistance grant had so many challenges. The SBC directed the Office of Small Business in November 2018 to quote, prioritize the funding of rent stabilization grants to qualified landlords o- over other grants paid through the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund. The business assistance grant was effect only for four years total and was discontinued after fiscal year 1920. The Office of Small Business created a replacement grant for the Business Assistance Grant that we call the Legacy Business Grant. It differentiates between renters, owners, for profit businesses, and nonprofit organizations to create four categories of grantees. For profit renters receive 4x, for profit property owners receive 3x, nonprofit renters receive 2x, and nonprofit property owners receive x. X is determined by the amount of money available and the number of businesses within each of the four categories. The grant is simpler, easier, less time-consuming, and more equitable. We implemented it as a one-time grant with $400,000 from the Board of Supervisors in fiscal year 21-22. To create a new grant program, it required that we moved money out of the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund That is important with regard to my presentation today, so I highlighted it in yellow. Because the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund was created by a ballot initiative, we could not create a new grant program within that fund. Today, the Rent Stabilization Grant for Landlords is the only available grant through the Legacy Business Program. The Office of Small Business can encourage landlords to share rent stabilization grants with their legacy business tenants, but we cannot require it without going back to the voters. Approximately 60% of rent stabilization grant landlords share some or all of the grant funds with their tenants. However, 40% do not. On November 2nd of this year, the San Francisco Chronicle featured a thorough Front page article by Caleb Pershan about the Rent Stabilization Grant. And it's slightly one-sided nature, how it favors landlords over legacy businesses and how some landlords share the grant with their legacy business tenants, but some do not. The article was an inspiration. It got me thinking, since the Rent Stabilization Grant is the only available grant that the Legacy Business Program currently has, Is there a way that the Office of Small Business could require that landlords share some of the grant funds with the legacy businesses without going back to the voters? And this is something we've been pondering for several years. There is. We could create a new legacy business program fund in the administrative code. This is possible because the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund did not include a dedicated source of funding. We could then place the funding we receive in the annual budget in this new Legacy Business Program Fund. The city attorney's office advised that this is acceptable. Note that this would of course be dependent on support from the mayor and from the Board of Supervisors. Require Board of Supervisors action. The new Legacy Business Program Fund would give the office of small business flexibility to create rules that otherwise would not be possible without going back to the voters. We would replicate the rent stabilization grant as a new grant within the new fund with slight changes to the rules and a new slightly different name, the business stabilization grant. The new grant would come before the SBC as an action item ideally at the January 22nd meeting as we're working on the budget for the next fiscal year. The board of supervisors would have a review period. We would slowly phase out the existing rent stabilization grant over time by accepting reapplications for the multi-year grants, but not accepting new applications. The proposed rule changes for the new grant would require that landlords share at least 50% of the new business stabilization grant with legacy businesses and eliminate the special contingency contingency provision that landlords are allowed to put into the lease which allows a landlord to cancel a legacy business lease if the landlord does not receive $4, $4.50 per square foot through the rent stabilization grant. Thank you for your time. i open to any questions.
5: Thank you very much for
1: your presentation. I see Director Tang.
5: I don't have a question, but just want to thank uh, my staff, obviously, for um, this great proposal. As we all know that the legacy business program when it was first established was very well-intentioned, but like many things that are established through voter initiative, it makes it really hard for us to change things later on if we find that there are issues. So uh, this was a a creative way, I think, around um, this problem that we see, which is we would love for more of the funding to go directly to the hands of small businesses. So um, again, thank you, Rick, for coming up with this idea. Yeah, thank you. Um, oh, Commissioner Herbert. No, Sorry.
17: Well, yeah, thank you very much. And um, has, has there be, been any Conversation about the timeline or the the um, how how long the legacy business needs to be existing. Like it's been, has it always been thirty years?
3: For the yeah, that would be uh, pertaining to the legacy business registry. Um, so that would be two a two four two in the administrative code, and we wouldn't be would not be making any changes to that. Okay. Um, this would just be pertaining to the grant program got it but yes uh, 30 years there is an exception for businesses that are between 20 and 30 years if the business is at risk of, for immediate displa- uh, risk of immediate displacement and getting on the registry would help them so one of the businesses that came before you on item two today was 25 years old and was still eligible
17: for the registry great okay thank you
1: commissioner ortiz cartania
18: Thank you, Rick, for that. That was great. And um, I love that, you know, article got your brain working and trying to, like, live up to the intent and the spirit of what we initially, you know, try to work with the legacy business. My, my question is just because, just you know, like, as a commissioner, so I know you said the city attorney said it's okay to do, and then we're going to bring it up to the mayor and the board of supervisors. Um, I ask because I don't know, but, like, is this kind of standard practice for things? I just, you know, because if the voters, even if it's wrong, I just some kind of responsibility make sure that we are following the voters' wishes, wrong or not. You know, more on that, I'm with it. I'm with the whole thing, you know, but I just, commissioners, I just want to make for due diligence purposes.
3: We, we feel this uh, is consistent with what the voters wanted because they wanted two grants, one for the businesses and one for the, the, landlords. Um, and so when the business one dropped out, it was a little bit one-sided. So we feel that this is, um, you know, going with the will of the voters, which is to, to have some of the money going to the businesses and some going to the property owners as well.
1: Thank you. Um, I guess my question is, so right now this is kind of like the, the conceptual framework of the legislation. How else I mean, can can we be helpful? I guess is—is this helpful for you to kind of just see, like, how I don't know how we feel about it. What is the next step? I guess is. um,
3: Yeah, this is not an action item. But if you definitely have any problems with it, you know, I would expect um, that you would say so. Um, So we would definitely take that into consideration. So you know, feel feel free if you have any issues to let us know at this point. Um, We are going to bring this. I'll have to create rules for the grant and we'll have a 10 day notice period for that and we'll bring that to the January 22nd meeting. Um, So it'll be identical to the rent stabilization grant except for those two items that we mentioned. So that would be an opportunity where you can um, approve the rules and if you need to make a motion. Okay, Um,
15: Vice President Zuzunas. Thank you, thanks for that. Uh, really helpful presentation and like my commis- co-commissioner said thank you for always thinking about this program and taking it so much to heart um i know we we had some um you know political involvement from our board at different points in time with this program and i want to make sure that um, if we are asking for them to reauthorize funds at one point or if we're asking the mayor to authorize more funds at one point that we're also um you know, keeping them updated so that we don't get more bad press or whatever. Um, so, how can we, um, like was said, make sure that um, you know there's alignment with with how we intend to get this funded, I guess.
3: Yeah. Katie could see I'm like trying to figure out the answer to that. I just
5: actually, I think it also uh, goes to the previous question, but so in addition, Rick mentioned the rules and regulations and having you all see that, but actually, um, I just wanna reiterate, it does require legislative change. So this is gonna be an ordinance that will be drafted that will be before the Board of Supervisors that then also needs to be signed by the mayor. So it's gonna have a robust public process
15: um, for it to actually take effect. I mean, it's good. It's good that people are vocal and passionate about this program. But I just know that our commission has been in the position before where we've had to, um, you know, I want to make sure we're getting ahead of their their political will. You know what I mean? So that we don't get um, have to do too much back and forth on this, and our ideas are in line. That's all.
3: That's great. Um, yeah. and also, you know, early on when I first started seven years ago, you know, I was making pres- regular presentations to the commission, just reporting. I think it was like every other month um, so you know now that everything's you know going smoothly you haven't made those presentations but if you ever want me to make a presentation you know like an update on everything that's going on I'm always happy to to do that I'm, I'm really big on transparency and appreciate um, communication with the commission and feedback from the commission so I'm always happy to do that
15: Likewise if there's something we need to relay that you can't we're um, all hands on deck for this. Thank you, both.
1: Great. Well, uh, seeing no other commissioner questions, um, is there a public
0: comment? Any public commenters in the room, please stand up.
1: Seeing no public comment. Public comment is closed. Thank you very much, Rick. Next item, please.
0: uh item seven approval of draft meeting minutes this is a discussion and action item the commission will discuss and take action to approve the september 11th 2023 draft meeting minutes
1: commissioners any questions or comments on on the minutes seeing no seeing no questions right (laughs) any public comment on the
0: (laughs) Any comment on the meeting minutes? None.
1: Seeing no comments, uh, public comment is closed. Commissioners, uh, can we take a motion to approve the draft meeting minutes? I'll take a motion to
0: approve. Moved by Commissioner Dickerson. Is there a second?
17: I second. Seconded by
0: <laughs> Commissioner Herbert. I'll read the roll. Commissioner Benitez. Commissioner Diggerson? Yes. Commissioner Herbert? Yes. President Huey? Yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Yes. And Vice President Cezunas? Yes. Motion passes. Great, next item please. Item eight, general public comment. This is a discussion item allowing members of the public to comment generally on matters that are within the Small Business Commission's jurisdiction but not on today's calendar and suggest new agenda items for future consideration.
1: Any members of the public who would like to make comment on items not on the agenda? Nope. Seeing no public comments, uh, public comment is closed. Next item, please. Uh,
0: Item nine, director's report. This is a discussion item providing an update and report on the Office of Small Business, Department Programs, policy and legislative matters, et cetera.
5: Thank you, and good evening, everyone. Uh, so of course I would like to join everyone in welcoming our newest commissioner, Commissioner Benitez. Welcome, welcome. Uh, so since our last meeting, I know it's been a while, we had a few cancellations. Um, just wanted to officially recognize uh, former commissioners Trisha Gregory and Tiffany Carter, um, who have since left the commission, but of course I know we all want to join in thanking them uh, for their service uh, here on this commission. Um, And of course, we will also work on getting uh, the remaining vacancy filled. Uh, The other update I wanna share with everyone, uh, you probably read in the news as well, is that we did have um, a requirement for mid-year budget reductions from the mayor's office this year. This is on top of uh, additional budget cuts that were asked of us in preparing for the budget going into this fiscal year already. I know there was a lot of talk about um, our legacy business program um, earlier in the agenda. And I wanted to note that um, the Office of Small Businesses portion of that uh, reduction was $95,000. We have a very small budget. It's about $3.3 million, which is mostly for staff. Uh, But there is a million of that for uh, the Legacy Business Program. Uh, Because we have nowhere to cut, uh, meaning even if I were to cut all the money for uh, staplers and paper it still would not have met our reduction target and so we had to cut from the legacy business program but um, the good news is there was some unspent funds from previous years so our legacy business program was still whole uh, but we did have to take um, originally for the Fiscal year 23, 24, roughly $395,000. And then for fiscal year 24, 25, approximately $400,000. Um, so again, this is not something that uh, we wanted to do, but there really was nowhere to cut or else we would have to cut our services, essentially our staff. So um, wanted to make sure you're aware of that, and we are hearing that there will be more cuts um, that will be required of us heading into the next fiscal years um, if things don't improve. So we are... Um, anticipating some instructions on that on that part. Uh, next, in terms of a legislative update, I uh, just want to share good news that uh, the small business permitting legislation that we worked on with the mayor, um, who sponsored this legislation, and we ended up with six co-sponsors. Uh, this would is the one that would make over 100 changes to the planning code to make it easier for people to get through the permitting process. Um, just one of several efforts, I want to say this is not the only thing that will make things better, uh, but it's, uh, this legislation is up for final vote at the Board of Supervisors tomorrow. And it already um, uh, ab- obtained 11-0 vote um, last week, so this is really exciting. Uh, we're hoping for uh, this to be signed into effect shortly, and um, hopefully take effect in mid-January. Uh, the next legislative item um, is something that Supervisor Preston introduced recently, and this would uh, waive ba- permit fees for banners um, if they're uh, if it's applied for by a nonprofit organization until the end of 2026, I wanna say. Um, So that is new legislation that was just introduced last week, so it'll still take some time to make its way through the process. Um, And then also, uh, again, I know it's been a while since we've been here, so just wanted to do a very, very quick high-level review or recap of APEC. Um, which, as you all know, uh, took place here in San Francisco during the week of November 12th, uh, the largest global event hosted by our city since the United Nations Charter was signed here in 1945. So, of course, along with it came a lot of challenges. Um, Our office, along with OEWD, uh, tried to work up front with the U.S. Secret Service to really understand the impacts that would be caused, um, especially to small business owners um, due to the security perimeters. Um, So, we try to understand it, convey that, as well as try to promote the small businesses throughout the entire city, and in particular, uh, those impacted by the security perimeters um, prior to and throughout the event. And even afterwards, uh, we have done merchant walks and um, also corresponded with other businesses that have reached out to us through other means uh, to talk about what it is that we can do to better support them. Not like APEC aside, but really we know so many businesses are still recovering from the pandemic. So what can we do to generate more foot traffic for them? Um, and you know, with a lot of people not going into the office, it's really hurt a lot of the businesses in those areas. So that's ongoing work for all of us. And if you have any ideas, suggestions, recommendations, we'd love to, to hear that in our office. Um, and then lastly, just more on a fun note on behalf of Rick, I wanted to share some Heritage Happy Hour events that are coming up that you're all invited to. These are events uh, put on to celebrate legacy businesses, so they are held in legacy businesses. So the com- one coming up this Thursday, December 14th, is at Lee Po Lounge in Chinatown at 916 Grant Avenue. And uh, Rick, I forget what time they start. I apologize. 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock PM, they start. So again, December 14th, Lipo Lounge, 916 Grant Avenue. And then in the next one after that is January 11th at Pops Bar. And that's at 2800 24th Street. And then I'll just give a third one here, February 8th, in case you want to mark your calendars. It's at the Irish, uh, the Irish Bank Bar and Restaurant at 10 Mark Lane. So those are all my updates, and happy to answer any questions. Thank you,
1: commissioners. Any questions, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena?
18: Two comments. Thank you for the work on the legislation with the mayor. I know you did a lot of work, especially in my community. So I appreciate you for that, Director.
5: And thanks to Carrie. I forgot to say that.
18: And Carrie, (laughs) yes, appreciate you both. Um, Rick, thank you for those heritage. They're they're fun, alcohol and getting to know each other outside of here. It's always fun, so. Awesome.
15: Vice President Zunis, Thank you, Director. Um, I know that different community groups have put out their own surveys around APEC. Um, Is there a centralized place in which feedback is is being solicited? Is it um, in terms of um, I think a lot of small businesses are under the pressure that there will be like a mitigation fund, or something like that. Is there a way we can more clearly relay to the small business community what um, you know is being solicited from them and where that information will go?
5: Yeah, thank you for that question. We have actually received um, through our office and OEWD in general um, several surveys or um, feedback from all sorts of businesses in the area. So we do have those on hand. And I know Supervisor Dorsey had also solicited feedback as well. Um, I will say this this was a very challenging event. Um, there was no money set aside for mitigation. I'll also want to remind the commissioners that Every day, our office hears about challenges in all parts of the city. So whether it's an MTA project that has impacted an entire corridor for months and months and months uh, to, um, well, I'd say probably a lot of MTA, but <laughs> there are lots of impacts. Again, also I mentioned pandemic earlier, right? And a lot of people still have not been recovered fully from that. Um, we hear across the board an average of sales being down 30%, right, uh, depending on where you're at. So. Um, Although, again, I recognize how significant it was um, for the businesses that could not stay open during APEC, there are so many needs out there. Um, So we're constantly thinking about how is it that we support all the businesses throughout the city and we just don't have enough money to go around for everyone. And I just mentioned the budget cuts that are coming, right? So um, all that to say that, you know, all the money that was set aside by the city and that was privately raised um, by donors was mostly to meet the requirements from the White House and the State Department around all of our obligations as a city to host APEC. So security, um, the venues that had to hold all these meetings and events, uh, but really mostly security. Um, the fencing, you know, all those things that really, um, you know, allowing the First Amendment activities to occur but keeping everyone safe. Um, that's that's what you know costs the city a lot uh, of money, and so um, all that to say, those costs um, you know aren't or the fund isn't available at this moment. Not to say I, I don't know what will happen in the future if they're able to find some funding, but um, that's the status at this moment.
1: Commissioner Herbert.
17: So thank you, and um, so was the overall thought that. APEC was beneficial for San Francisco? Is that too, is it too much of a pointed question?
5: <laughs> I think it depends on who you ask. Um, I think from city government uh, leadership standpoint, it certainly was uh, really meaningful just to see the tone of how um, international countries, you know, uh, how they view San Francisco and what they're reporting back in their home country uh, media outlets really important in terms of drawing tourism here, not just for the short term, but really the long term. And that perception of what San Francisco is has really hurt us uh, quite a bit. So um, so in that standpoint, from that standpoint, that's really important, as well as uh, the leaders. And um, there was also a CEO conference that happened at the same time. So um, trying to draw investors to San Francisco as well. So from the broader perspective, yes, it was, um, helpful for San Francisco. But of course, that is this is not to say that it was terrible experience for the small businesses within the security perimeter. Like we totally recognize that.
17: Thank you.
1: I just had a couple of comments. Um one was also to welcome Commissioner Ron Benitez. And I, I don't know what would be an appropriate time if he wanted to say a few words. I know that maybe I, I got to say a few words when I first started. I don't know if that's something that um We can
5: do that at the Commissioner Reports item. OK, that's that next good. one. Just next to one, give, yes. Just to
1: give him a few minutes to prepare his, uh,
5: <laughs> his, his address to the public.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, the state of the nation <laughs> according to Commissioner Ron Benitez. Um, I also wanted to um, reflect my deepest gratitude for um, our co-commissioners, uh, Commissioner Tiffany um, Carter, and um, and for Trisha as well. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that they're you know they have. I know everybody has other things to do and. Um, So I appreciate all of you also to give your time to this commission. Um, And, oh, you know, I wanted to say on um, APEC that I appreciate the way that you've been looking at this because, I, you know, um, it's an indicator to me, obviously, the concern around APEC as well as concern around um, transportation mitigation, concerns about any other sort of like, outside kind of larger project impact kind of thing, like what, it, how those impact small businesses. I think the biggest indicator for me is that that means that we're so close to the edge, right? Like small businesses are not working with a big buffer. And so things like that, you know, one weekend, one week of revenue is a really important um it's important to their bottom line. It's important for their survival. And, you know, I think it's good to look at it in the bigger picture, because this was one of the questions that we asked in our survey during um, pandemic was really, how much of a buffer do you have? How much cash do you have in the bank to get you through, you know, the next week, the next month, the next six months? And ideally, I mean, you should have several months on hand, right, of cash on hand to be able to cover your payroll expenses, like all these different things. There are, you know, best standard practices. But if you look at, like, our San Francisco businesses, many businesses, and it may not be even across the board, but many businesses are living with very little cash on hand. And that may be same for, like, residents as well, right? And so I think for us, like, these are all you know, it's hard to see because oftentimes it's like people come at us with a lot of, like, their own issues, right? And for us as a commission, it's really seeing kind of the patterns and where can, wh- what are the bigger levers that we can enact in order to help, um, you know, create more long-lasting change versus being a help desk for everybody. I mean, I appreciate that that's what you, you guys do for everyone, but I definitely see that that's something that you consider in your thinking, Did you want to?
5: Yeah, actually, I just want to thank you for raising that because let's just say that there was a mitigation fund for APEC, right, as an example. Um, But there might be some structural issues with a business, as as you um, alluded to, with many of the small businesses we encounter. Um, So we give them a stipend for one month um, to cover rent. Is that going to help them long-term, right? We want to make sure that Whatever the structural challenges are, we can assist them um, with that, so that they can be here for the longer term, not just so that we can help them survive one more month. So I think that was, you know, that's that's part of my point of um, we want to make sure that yeah, we're looking at holistically what can we do to drive more foot traffic to get more of that presence of the business out there, um, so that people will support them, and how do we bring back, um, you know, with the lack of office workers. Um, how do they generate new customers then or maybe rethink um, and pivot their business a bit? So it, those are all the things that we want to um, help businesses with and I think are more important for the their long-term um, stability.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Great. Well, um, is
1: there any public comment on the director's report? No public comment. So public comment is closed. Um, next item, please.
0: Item 10 commissioner discussion and new business. This is a discussion item allows the president vice president and commissioners to report on recent small business Activities make announcements that are of interest to the community and make inquiries of staff
1: um, Commissioner Ortiz Cartena.
18: Thank You president Huey. I wanted a report regarding the street vendor van that went in effect on November 27th from 14th Street to Cesar Chavez on Mission Street um, I want to give a thanks to OEWD, Glecha, 24. They were not part of the ban, However, they reacted to find accommodations for the vendors that were affected. And the Glecha team, they worked through Thanksgiving, actual Thanksgiving, to get a space ready in time for the band. So there's two locations, one indoor location at 2137 Mission, which is in between 17th and 18th. And then Kaya has another location on 24th and Cap Street, the former vaccination site. Um, And there's still a ton of space. It's not full, despite whatever the media says. And um, I want everybody to support the vendors. Shop there if you can. We had an awesome event on Sunday. It was packed. It was fun. We had cookie decorations, Santa Claus, snow. You know how I throw a party, so it it gets lit. And also, Supervisor Ronan. Is also providing some financial assistance, direct financial assistance to the vendors that were affected. So, it's a lot of community work with the supervisor, and we're we're trying to mitigate the impact it's had on street vendors. And the ultimate goal is is just to gain control of our streets again. I mean, it, the mission. I grew up there, and it was never like that. It was never like that. And our brick and mortar merchants, they're just they're thrilled. Like the street is clean. Our elders could walk you could get off the bus now you know children are not scared so i also want to thank the mayor and department of public works because they've thrown a lot of resource behind it and and it's working and it's working and quality of life in the mission is improving so i appreciate everybody if i haven't named you on this sorry but i appreciate you too any
1: other commissioners um, I guess I will go with my. Oh, actually, you oh, you have your State of the Nation. That, oh, sorry.
2: I'm very <laughs> happy to be here. Um, no, well, you know, this is my my first meeting, so just obviously soaking it all in, um, kind of getting the gist of of how everything works. But I, I, I really, truly am excited to be here. Um, you know, I've known about the commission for um, a long time, and finally being able to. Uh, represent the neighborhood, or represent now—you know—help represent the, the majority of the corridors uh, from a different perspective—is something both really exciting, engaging, um, and and a challenge that I'm, you know, willing to you know take on. Um, so yeah, I'm just you know really really excited to to be here and learn from all of you and work with all of you collaboratively, um, you know, on this commission. Um, trying to think if there's anything else. Um, you know, as you guys know, I work closely with our Divisadero Merchants Association, so we just got a new president um, there. So just trying to reestablish and revitalize that neighborhood, um, and so really excited to partner with them again to uh, get everything really excited um, in that corridor. So that's the big news. Oh yes, um, also went to the White House this weekend. Um, <laughs> For a reception, Uh, it was a holiday reception with Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, Our relationship with her, though, has been, you know we were fortunate to meet with her for a small business roundtable with other AAPI businesses back in February. And from then on, it's always been a really great relationship with her staff. Um, We were invited to APEC, obviously, to watch her keynote. Um, We were uh, recently invited to uh, a reception at the White House, a holiday reception, which turned out to be a California delegation, really. Did see D.A. Jenkins there, um, Supervisor Stephanie from District 2, and just a few other people that I recognized from San Francisco, and then I realized, oh, this is a California get-together. So while it was fun and exciting, um, it was great to just kind of, you know, get to know everybody on it from a different perspective um, in a less, more formal setting. Um, So it was really fun, but, um, you know, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, And so, you know, um, that's where I was this past weekend. Turned it into a... uh, um, a fun little weekend getaway, too. So we had to take our daughter out of school, but we said, hey, we'll take pictures in front of all the monuments and show it to your teacher. So she's got her own history lesson that she's excited to share.
1: It's amazing. See, this is what small business can do. You can go to the White House. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you're on the list, you're on the list.
1: <laughs> well, my news sounds really not that exciting, no. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think refer going back to what we were talking about. And I, I don't want to go back to another agenda item, but presenting a new agenda item, looking forward into the new year, I'm wondering if a survey or something like that might be um, possible to put on kind of like new agenda items. I know, you know, we, for the past couple of years, we've been doing the small business survey, but now I'm thinking perhaps we can. Um, hone in on not having so many questions, but we can get like five questions or something where it's like for us to be able to take a pulse on how small businesses are doing and that way we can see year over year change because I love making goals that are like, you know, lofty. You know, why should we not dream big and think like can, can 99 of businesses, or whatever, 100% of businesses. Like, you know, um, I don't know why I left out the 1%. I assume a 1% maybe doesn't want to participate, that's why. So like, but 100% of businesses, you know, they should have enough cash on hand to be able to feel really comfortable that, you know, should something happen this weekend, or should something happen in the next week or two, whatever it is, doesn't set them off course. So I think these are some goals that we can, you know, put next to best practices, and kind of see, you know, I, I think they, there should be alignment, I think, between what we want for the businesses in our city with, like, overall best practices. Um, and, oh, Vice President Sazunas, did you want to go now or after? Or did you have a comment? Um, I actually had a response to... This. Oh, sure. Oh, god. Um,
15: and you're making me think also about how we maybe should survey, unless this is already happening. But the success centers, the Renaissance centers, you know, um, our SBDC. Um, I'm curious, like, if if there's a space, maybe the SBDC does this convening, or or is there a way that we're getting a pulse from our small business service providers, too? Um, and maybe we can, you know, better identify um, how we as a city can support those in the field that we're referring small businesses to. I don't know. Maybe there's some trends we can pick up from that angle, I, I would. I think, would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Director Tang,
5: I'd be happy to look into that. Uh, that would be our... Colleagues over at OEWD uh, within the Community Economic Development Division that uh, holds the contracts with the technical assistance providers. So I'd be happy to ask them as well as our colleagues at the Small Business Development Center.
1: And any other things? I don't have any other things um, to report. I think that's it. Okay, great. Oh, public comment. Does any. Anybody here want to make public comment? No, public comment is
0: closed. Next item, please. Item 11, adjournment, SFGovTV. Please show the Office of Small Business slide.
1: We will end with a reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco. If you need assistance with small business matters, continue to reach out to the Office of Small Business. Meeting adjourned.